Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of MTG Rants. Ross, it still feels weird to say that because I got so used to saying the Pioneer Podcast. It feels weird to hear it too. I don't know. I, there's something about the alliteration of the Pioneer Podcast. You know, just it just sounds good. It sounds right. Like, you know what I mean? It's Does just it, uh, um, semantic. Rolls off, sort of rolls, rolls off the tongue. I don't know. MTG man. Rants rolls off the tongue. Honestly, Pioneer Podcast has a lot of hard stops in it. Maybe I just say it better than how about that? Well, maybe you just don't know how to enunciate. Well, maybe I maybe I'm the only one who knows how to enunciate. You ever think about it that if way, you buddy? Enunciate, then you stop at those hard syllables. The D in podcast, hey. the T hey. at the end. You don't get to tell the me first how syllable I speak. of pioneer. <laughs> anyway, Ross, how you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, yeah, just a normal week. <laughs> normal week, okay. <laughs> I don't think any week's normal. Maybe this I is mean, the, it, it's new. the new. Yeah, it's the new normal. The new normal. Yeah. Like I, I. I it's just the new normal at this point. I don't know. I've gotten used to it. It's just, it just is what it is. It still kind of sucks. It's not going to be over for a while. I've actually changed up a few things this week. Um, I was supposed to say, I haven't gone like super hardcore into it, but I've been trying to be a little more active and like try to exercise a little bit more. And I did, um, I did one of those like full body stretch videos the other day. It's like, it's, it's yoga. You know what I mean? It, it, it's just yeah. yoga, but like they call it a body stretch. And there's nothing more humbling than the first time you do one of these things and realize like, A, how out of shape you are. It, like you know, so, like, cause like they start you off like pretty easy, right? You know, you're like doing these va- basic stuff, and you're like warming up, and you're moving around. And you're like, yeah, you're like, yeah, I got this. And then they're like, they're like, all right, do this shoulder stretch where like you're balancing on your feet, like on your feet, and on the like, let's say if you're stretching your right shoulder, balancing, balancing on, on your, your feet is kind of what you normally do, Tannen. Well, no, 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 no. I don't mean stand wise. I'm doing like a plank, almost. Like I'm on my feet and my uh, like like left forearm, right? And then you like, you take your right arm. And you like shove it underneath where your armpit has that thing, and you like rotate your body that way. And maybe this isn't this is like like hip, shoulder, or like that whole area. So you're like contorted. You know what yeah. I mean? You're not so you're just like, like set up to do a push up, and then instead you corkscrew yourself. Yeah, exactly. And you're supposed to like hold it for like fifteen or twenty seconds, and like it doesn't sound that hard, right? It's really not that hard. That sounds very it's, hard. Fifteen to twenty seconds is an eternity. Yeah, because like the thing is, you have to use all these stabilizing muscles to like keep you yeah, there because you're in such like, an awkward position. You don't do that like normally. So like you're, you know what I mean? It's like it's like the first time you like lift heavier weights. You know, you kind of like you're shaking a little bit. Your body's like pushing, and like you just feel unstable. There was a lot of that, and there was a lot of like I'd be stretching all of it, and all of a sudden you hear, oh shit, I can't, oh shit, you know, <laughs> I can't do this or oh, and stuff. So I don't know, but I will say this: I woke up the next day and I felt a lot better. Like, lower back felt a lot looser. My legs felt looser. Because sitting all day, you know, what's the saying? They have sittings, the new smoking or whatever from from all this. But sitting all day, I've been trying to make myself move around more in my chair instead of just sitting in the same position all the time. Because, like, I feel my legs getting tighter. Because I'm not using them as much. I'm not walking. I'm not stretching them now. Your circulation is also not going to be as good. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's all bad. So I'm trying to do that. I'm, I'm trying to get, like, you know, some walks or runs in during the day when the sun's out and stuff now. But it's getting colder, too. So, like, you have to cover up more now. It's just annoying. But... Oh, yeah. It's going to – well, one, it never gets cold in Louisiana. So I don't know what you're talking about. Well, it's cold for Louisiana. How about but, that? Yeah. I It's it's going to start to get cold finally. I've, I've looked at the weather forecast here. We're finally dipping below 60-degree highs later this week. And, yeah, it's just going to make it, – it, it's honestly just going to make it worse. Like, it, th- this all happened – you know, lockdown started in March when things are, are warming up and we're getting into spring. And honestly, one, that was already disappointing because that's the time when you're looking forward to going outside again and doing things. And it's like, by the way, no, 
we're not gonna, <laughs> we're way, not doing just, that just now. no yeah just stay the fuck home yeah uh and but now we're gonna have to be at home in the winter and never leave and we've already been home for eight months straight and see that i'm kind of looking forward to a little more right like it's it's a little more acceptable to be in your pajamas all day long and like, <laughs> drink and eat soup during the middle of the day like during the holidays i feel like That's i think we talked about this been last acceptable year. for months now tannin and i've been That's, doing it yeah. Exactly, but I think we talked about this last year where, like, the holidays are this mythical time, like, especially during December when you're, you know, I'm not going to be doing it this year, but when you used to, like, travel all over the place to see all your relatives or whatever, blah, 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 and, like, time has no meaning. Days have no meaning during yeah. this, like, three to four you week period. You just get to do whatever you want. And I, I'm a firm believer that, like, we should get the week of New Year's off. Like, it should just be a full, like, let everybody party, do whatever, you know, obviously not the same this year, but... Let them have that recovery time and then come in like fresh and ready to go week two of January. Yeah, we should have we what we should have is a calendar, right, where uh, we have we still have 12 months, but we regulate it so that they're all 30 days. And then we have five extra days, maybe six on a leap year. That's all. That's just New Year's week where we don't have to do anything. Yeah. And like you can even put it all together in those six days. You can make us have like Christmas, New Year's recovery. You know, like the first day is Christmas, recover, right? Third day, New Year's, few days of recovery, done. Maybe, maybe you give like two days after Christmas. Uh, yeah, you gotta give you gotta give some time because I, you gotta go home for Christmas and you gotta come back and then you you know you gotta go out on New Year's Eve. So hey, FBI agents who listen in on every conversation and like we'll, we'll look through your videos, like you you just heard this conversation, it's genius. Like reach out to whoever you need to in the government. You can hire us as independent contractors. You should pay us for these ideas because our ideas should be paid for, pay people for their work. I think Ross and I are onto something here. We may have fixed a big problem. We've got probably a lot of other good ideas. Yeah, we, you know, uh, we have the Gregorian calendar now, so we could just change that up. We could have the... The, the, the Mammarium calendar? Yeah, I, I don't know. Some horrible portmanteau of our names. The Gregorian calendar? We'll just, we'll just call it the GM calendar. The, the, the GM calendar, I like it because yeah. then we'll just be the we'll be the GM of the United States for for, for dates, yeah. I guess. Like we'll we'll general manage the United States into a new era. <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 completely reset the years too, so we'll go from being AD to to GM. It's it's year sure. twenty seven GM. Sure. I actually want to joke about it. I think I made this joke the other day. We're like we're gonna have like a, a new calendar it'll be like ac like after covid like when this is all done in a few years we can just be like all right this is year one after covid so stuff's back to normal quote unquote because it's never really going to be actually back to normal anyway uh let's 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 move on to some other ranting that we're talking about uh i've had a i've had a fun week sports wise even though there's not a ton going on besides i haven't looked lately the masters is going on right now which is really weird because it's usually in april <laughs> yeah it's usually like four months from now five months from now you know and um but they have to get in and uh there was a very large cat doing really well. There was a large animal doing really well at the Masters series. Obviously, I'm talking about Tiger Woods. And, this is striped, yeah. Yeah. D- besides all the personal stuff aside, I still like to see the guy do well. There's nothing. Their ratings are always through the roof. It's just good for golf when he does well. So I also saw a, a weird coincidence where um, it's like Jack Nicholas won his sixth and final Masters 23 years after his first one, and. He was thirty third in the world going into the tournament that week, and uh, both of those things are holding. All, true all for those Tiger. things are, are true for Tiger for this week. He's the ranked thirty third in the world. He's got five. This would be a sixth. It's twenty three years since the first one. Remember the first one he won in ninety seven. That was sort of the the beginning of the Tiger era. 
I remember watching that tournament. I, I really do. I remember watching it and laughing, just laughing at how just criminally far ahead he was and everybody else. Is that the one where he shot like 18 under? Yeah, he was in, in like away. second place was like two. Yeah, he was just demol. It's like when they started talking about, uh, I, I don't know if you remember the phrase, they talked about tiger proofing courses <laughs> because he was so much longer than everyone else back then. Like he just on average hit the ball so much longer and better that like he was getting shots you shouldn't be able to get. You know, he's hitting yeah. like seven irons into par fives for a second shot when other guys are hitting like fairway woods or something. Or like he was getting to go for things they can't go for. So they had to make like tee boxes further back. Like they had to make the courses harder. But what they didn't realize, it made it harder for everyone else and just normal for him. Yeah. Like they didn't re- they didn't realize till later the courses that he struggled on and the courses that he was good on. It's just like, yeah, like it doesn't matter if you make it longer. His length is actually going to help him there. You have to make it tighter. Like you have to make it shape more. And then he became a really good golfer as well, which he always was. Anyway. Besides all that, that's interesting. Um, it's been uh, it's been awards week in baseball this week. You know when they start to give away all the awards. Freddie Freeman won National League. That was announced about two hours ago. Yeah, an hour I ago, maybe two hours ago. I saw um, MV Free, and then uh, Cy Youngs were Shane Bieber and Trevor Bauer. I think the most okay unanimous for Bieber. Yeah, you, you absolutely unanimous, and it should have been. It's it's arguable that Bauer could have been how unanimous. How many unanimous Cyangs have we ever had? Do you know? Um, I, I think Pedro got an, an unanimous one. And Probably for one of those 90s, 90, was it 98, 90, 99 to 2000, those two years of Boston Braves. Yeah, early, early, early 2000s. Height like of the steroid era, and he's just completely fucking unhittable. Yeah, there was there was one year during like the height of the steroid era where his numbers were ungodly. His ERA was like 1.7 or something. Or yeah, like 1. his, his 8. whip and, is like 0. 0.7 something. Yeah, and it's just like... He he was he should have been burned at the stake for witchcraft. Honestly, yeah, what was going was, on that season? It was the most dominant that's happened in our life. You know, the, there's like the Doc Gooden season in '84 and Bob Gibson, Gibson in '68, and but uh, yeah, and, and I guess thir- '34 is, is in your lifetime, right, Tana? Yes. Yeah, not mine though. Yeah, of course. Just to be um, clear, to so listening. Uh, I gotta say, I think they did a really good job this year on the awards. Usually, I like kind of disagree with like one or two, mm-hmm. but there was a couple of years where they just refused to give the MVP to Mike Trout. Yeah, right. It's like it's like that year they like didn't give Jordan the MVP because they were like, we just need to give it to someone else. Yeah, and it's like well, no, he really, happened, really happened don't. To LeBron too. That's how that's how yeah. fucking Derrick Rose got his MVP. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, we don't want to give it to you. Yeah, exactly. You've won too um, many. All right, so um, looking up unanimous ones, Johan Santana twice, Pedro twice. It was ninety nine and two thousand. Santana won two Cy Youngs. Yeah, he was. He probably he, he might have won more than two. He was unbelievable in Minnesota. Yeah, I remember him winning the one in 06. So it's happened one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times in the American League, That's and nine times in the uh, nine times in the National well, League. Now ten in the American League, I guess. Or are you counting? Bieber? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, they have Bieber on here, but. Uh, Clayton Kershaw won it in 2014, Roy Holiday in 2010, Jake yeah. Peavy, Randy Johnson, Greg Maddox, a lot of these names that you'll remember. Uh, even back to the... Jake Peavy won a unanimous Cy Young? Yeah, Jake Peavy was really good for like in a few San years. Diego, right? In San Diego, yeah. He had like a really solid career overall, but there was a few years where he was the best pitcher in baseball. Yeah. Or one of the best pitchers in baseball. I mean, he was also pitching in San Diego, right? Uh, Yeah, I mean, their they're, they're stadium before this one wasn't the best pitching stadium ever, but I mean, whatever. Uh, you get to pitch in the West, that, you know, that, that helps a lot. But. Yeah. Uh, but no, like it was, it was, it was nice to see these awards go out to the ones. Who, the gold gloves are always a joke because that's a oh, popularity yeah. contest or whatever. But um, you know, don't need to super get into that or whatever. But it's just, it was nice to see Freddie Freeman win the MVP for lots of reasons. It's nice to see him finally get some of the recognition that he deserves. This is like he's been in the league for over ten years, and I feel like people just don't know who he is. And it's like he's one of the best players in the game. Um, he had COVID 
at the beginning of the season and just was, you know this, you had him on your fantasy team, and he was just not himself for the first two or three weeks. Yeah. And then he was ungodly. He was, again, not himself, but in a good way. (laughs) Uh, Like, I looked up some of the numbers. I don't have them ready, but at one point in time, he's on base percentage for an entire month was was 50%. It was literally 500. Like, he just got on base half the time he was up there. That's, like, Barry Bond shit. Like, you know, he's, like, literally in 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 the Barry Bond's yeah, the, the Barry Bonds, Ted Williams, Babe Ruth. Uh, like, they don't even want to pitch to you. Like, they're just going to throw... Like, they're getting on base as much because they'd rather give you first base than let you swing the bat because you're that good. So, uh, great year for, for my Braves overall. One win within uh, within the... God, it still hurts a little bit. One win within the... Getting to the World Series, obviously. Yeah. We still have to win the games there, but I, I do believe we would have been the favorite and probably beat the Rays as well. So... It, it it whatever man well i'll get over it eventually maybe probably not but eh, you never really get over it you just get on with your life yeah they'll they'll be next season and i'll forget about it and then yeah and then i won't and then i won't so all that stuff but um speaking of forgetting about it there's some stuff that we shouldn't forget about there was some magic hold on that went hold on this on. weekend you got to yeah, talk right. about your sports stuff i got to talk about my sports stuff oh oh i i didn't know the basketball was still going on i mean the draft is next week Oh, you're, I must say, the timeline is ex- extremely aggressive for yeah, the NBA. Yeah, they're starting the season on the 22nd of December. So we are... Which which is surprising because they were shooting... I heard they were shooting for January. So the, the players we were. heard a, a ton of different scenarios that were thrown out there. And eventually, it, it became very clear that the owners wanted to start sooner. Because yeah. one, they want, to, they, they want to have max revenue. They lost... Yeah. A, 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 it was, they were like a billion and a half short of expectations something like that for the season they just released the the revenue i think that i think it was about a billion and a half short and so the, like that they're they're all you know wanting to to make as much revenue this season as possible their ratings for the finals and the bubble overall were not good you know it still recouped a lot of revenue it was like several hundred million dollars that they recouped i i, I kind of get that too just to interrupt for two seconds yeah. i didn't watch as like the games like i would and it felt weird like when you're watching it it had that college basketball feel to it it was like real weirdly it just looked weird it was like yeah. the, the stands were really close the the, the 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 court just didn't look the same does that make sense yeah no it was it had a very different feel to it it was uh you know and it, a lot of it i think was also it just being at, a, at that weird time in the summer so they want to avoid getting into that summer basketball again so th- i think they're going to end up finishing the season in like late july or maybe early August. You also don't want to fight for for ratings. Yeah, with, and, like, and, with, and most of that is going to be playoffs, right? Yeah, you don't want to fight for ratings with a bunch of other sports. You've already got to fight football. You know, with football going on yeah. right now, and then you don't want to just be football and you want your. You, there's that time when like there's only the NBA. Yeah, you know, and they they got to shine there. So so the, they the players were were initially very against starting the season that early, but eventually you know came were won over and agreed to it. So they're starting the season then. They're, we're supposed to be getting word soon that the moratorium on trades and stuff is going to end, I've heard, a couple days before the draft. So it'll probably end you know, early next week. And Yeah, I'm interested to see where Russell Westbrook's going to end up. He just, he just said he wants out of Houston. The idea is that this is going to be a very fast offseason, so there's going to be a flurry of activity. It's going to be exciting. So I'm just kind of like you know waiting in anticipation, though I do not expect the Jazz to go ham. They made their big move last year, bringing in Conley. They're not. They're going to run it back another year. They know what they need, and and I, I think a lot of Jazz fans are going to end up disappointed with this offseason because they just don't understand what this team needs. The, t- the team was awesome. Their first six or seven guys, 
but one of the guys was injured, and the guys past those six or seven were horrible. They had one of the worst benches in the league because they they you know that's what happens. You got to consult you consolidate some assets from when you have some depth and a couple good pieces for another piece to try to put you over the top. That's what they do with Conley. And, you know, they got rid of Grayson Allen, who's developing as a young asset. Uh, Jay Crowder, he saw play well for Miami in the finals. A couple first-round picks. One of those first-round picks became Brandon Clark, who is in Memphis and had a very, very good rookie season. So you can imagine if, like, all those pieces were, were in Utah, like, they would have had a much better bench. But then when you're paying Conley that that amount of money, and they're paying Rudy quite a bit of money, and then Bogdanovich, you know, you got to fill out your bench with some cheap guys. And they tried to buy low on, on, you know, veterans like Jeff Green and Ed Davis, and just neither of those worked out at all. They're complete bricks. So what they need is they just need, you know, a better bench. They need a better backup center. They need a good wing and maybe a third point guard. And, the, and you know, th- th- those are going to be small moves that aren't going to be, you know, be a big deal. They've got their first round pick. They're picking 23rd. So it, this is a weird time because I, I don't like getting super into the draft beforehand because there's this... You basically, unless I'm going to sit down and watch a million college games after the fact, which I don't want to do, I just can't figure out which players I like and which I don't like. I know the kind of player that I want them to take that'll fit well, but I just trust the Jazz, and all I want is the draft to happen and for me to see the guy that they actually took and then start looking into that one guy, right? So... You know, I've we've been in these sort of doldrums for the NBA, and we're just, we're going to ramp up really quickly to something really exciting. Uh, this like very short off season, so I'm just kind of waiting with bated breath for the the ball to drop and everything to start happening. Yeah, I mean, it's a really really quick turnover for exactly like the Lakers and Heat and anyone who did well in the playoffs, <laughs> yeah. and then it's an immensely long wait for the teams that didn't make the bubble. So if you were like really bad last season, you haven't played in like a year. Like it yeah. feels like, you know, it's something like 200 days, like over 200 days, you know, for these guys. So I know some of these guys are like, I'm ready to play now. And then like LeBron Lakers are like, can we get a couple more weeks? Like, <laughs> can I chill? Yeah, like, I, I, feel like- I imagine you will uh, you will see LeBron doing a lot of coasting in the first couple months of this season. Yeah, like rely on AD in his younger legs a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that kind of stuff. I definitely see that. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting because I always find off seasons in sports other than baseball to be um interesting right because like basketball and football it's all condensed into like two days or three days and no real big move happens out of that like stuff happens quick. yeah there's if decisive. you're if you're a really big fan the subtle important moves happen a couple like you know weeks down the road but those don't get big press so if you're not a big fan you, you won't see those but yeah it's because like they're already negotiating so by the time like you're allowed to announce and, and like make everything public like things have already been negotiated so it's just you know, formality and we're gonna have free agency start like you know, days or a week after the draft. I can't remember the exact timeline, but training camps open on the 1st of December. And so that means that, like, normally... happen fast, yeah. Yeah, normally you see, like, for normally the draft is in June, right? And, you know, right after the season ends, generally. And then July 1st is the is when free agency starts. And then August, there's not really much that happens, right? You can still do some free agency stuff, but basically the month of July is, like, your NBA free agent month. And then the doldrums happen in March or in August and early September. And then things start picking up in September. Training camps open preseason in October. Season starts at the end of October. So it's just more stretched out. We're just going to have all of that stuff happen within the span of, you know, two weeks. And it's going to be great. And so, like, it's just so drastically different than what I'm used to. Because in baseball, it's a drawn out process. It's usually really long. Yeah. There's a lot of courting going on for these guys. 
And it's going to be different this year. You know, there's there's not going to be the meetings that they normally like. They they actively have what's called the GM meetings, where they go rent out like they'll go rent out, rent out like the you know somewhere in Nashville or something, you know, some big hotel like the Grand Ole Opry Hotel or whatever. And they'll just stick those people in there for like four or five days, and they're like, yeah, talk to each other. And so a lot of trades come out of it. You know, a lot of moves come out of it. Uh, they can talk to players, et cetera, et cetera. And that's obviously not happening this year. Plus, they lost a lot of money this this year as well. And look, that's not me saying I feel bad for them, but there's a lot of players this year that are you know. They're like, hey, I'm a free agent and I've been great. This is supposed to be like, you know, where I get to make my money. And now the contracts are going to be significantly smaller. And it's going to be interesting to see who responds well to that and who doesn't. Like, who, you know, do you strike early in the offseason to like, you know, get the money before it goes away? Or do you wait and see if, you know, they decide, oh, maybe the sanctions get lifted a little bit. We see that we're going to have fans in our stands and I can offer a little bit more money this year. You know, that that's going to be out there. They're not even sure on the rules. For next season, like we keep hearing reports that the DH might be back for the National League next year or not. So we're not sure. And that matters a lot because if you have the DH in the National League, that's <clears throat> like 15 extra jobs, you know, for, for hitters, especially people like, uh, you know, Marcelo Zuna, who was a huge part of the Atlanta Braves this year. I don't ever want to see him on the field with a glove on his hand. Ever. <laughs> He's so bad. And this is a guy that won a gold glove in his history. He just hurt his shoulder really bad and he cannot throw the baseball anymore. Like he look, he looks like um, I almost said Henry Rowan Gardner. He looks like uh, what was Smalls' real name? I can't remember what Smalls' real name is, but he looks like Smalls. Like when he first learns how to throw a baseball in Sandlot. I'm talking. There's the big arch. You know, like like he cannot throw a line drive anymore. Like he cannot throw it like a big leaguer. It's like I probably have a better arm than Marcelo's in at this point. <laughs> that's the uh, that's the thing that's happening with with the NBA too. And one of the reasons that people are expecting a lot of trades is because you know the the cap is staying the same. <laughs> cap and luxury tax, all those numbers are staying the same. Um, and that means there's, you know, very little money on the free agency market. So, and teams are reluctant to even spend money, even if they have some that they, you know, if you want to improve your roster, if you want to make changes, the best way to do it is on the trade market. So could see a flurry of activity. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's go talk about some magic. So, uh, there was what three showcase challenges this weekend that there, happened? There was more than that, but, I don't really give a shit about vintage and legacy, so right, right. It's well, I care about legacy, but we're not going to cover that one yeah. uh, today as much on the show. Uh, we're going to be covering the pioneer, standard, and modern ones, and talking about them a little bit. And the showcase challenges are a little bit more important than just your normal challenges that you have from week to week. These are the ones that you know they have an entry fee, so they're going to be probably a little well, bit the better. On have average. an entry fee of, of thirty tickets, but these are the ones where you need QPs. Well, that's what I mean. They have the the the, the, the entry fee you can't just box. buy. Yeah. Yeah. So um, your general average player is going to be a little higher uh, on the skill set. You know, you're going to have a little harder competition. And they're also pretty big. This is what people save their QPs to, to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and every, so let's go ahead and start with their calendar. Yeah, let's go ahead and start with the Pioneer ones. We used to be a, a Pioneer-centric uh, podcast. And you had some uh, you had some strong things to say about a few of the decks that were featured in here, what it seems like the format's boiled down to. And you were, inter- and you were very happy to see a certain deck finish, just not... Uh, to, do, to do well, have a good finish this week, but not in the hands of the person that you'd expect. Well, I mean, it, it's it's pretty clear at this point that the metagame we saw a couple weeks ago, I think was sort of a mirage. You okay. know, we saw that metagame that was a lot of like mid-range Yorian decks with sweepers and the, the Auras decks and things like that. And uh, are, I guess maybe not a mirage, but I feel like we've, we've circled back around because I think part of it is, is the... You know, we have this metagame with with Burn and the Mono Green Planeswalker deck at the top. I, and I kind of think Auras is really good against both of them. Um, 
And that, that deck, to, you know, we saw Aura's decks take over for a couple weeks, and then these sweepers come into the format. Everybody's playing Supreme Verdict in these Yorian decks. And then I think we cycled back around where the Yorian decks are really weak to burn and Planeswalkers, because Verdict is just not very good disruption against them. And now we're sort of seeing things balance, because those are the decks that we see. We still see some Yorian decks, we see a lot of burn, Monogreen Planeswalkers, some Aura's decks, and that's kind of where the metagame is, so... It's just about where exactly the numbers balance between all of those archetypes. But right now, it's pretty clear that people need to react to burn. You know, there's there it did really well last weekend, and I think there's three in this top eight. Or is it a burn? Yeah, three. Yeah, I think there's three. Yeah. So you know, three copies. You know, they're all. They're, it's the same. It's the same fucking deck. Like, this is just the burn deck that we have come to know and you know love or hate depending upon your perspective, but. Uh, you know, it hasn't changed. They added Royal Lake Vortex to the sideboard because that card's pretty cool. That's that's about it. So make sure you can, you know, have some game against Burn. Uh, the best performing Yorian deck, clearly here's the, the Luka um, Agent deck and Fires. Two copies, including the trophy. Not surprising to me. I've kind of always thought this was the best of the bunch. I think, it, you know, one, that they get to play Chain to the Rock, so they have a cheap spot, piece of spot removal. They have the cheapest sweeper in Anger of the Gods, so that's going to help them against Burn. Uh, honestly, like you, know, you get to sideboard. Uh, yeah, I see a Resolute Archangel. That would be 100% be my plan if I was playing this deck right now with so much Burn around, and you just cut the agents and just Archangel them as quickly as you can. Well, not as quickly as you can, but like you know, time the Archangel to gain a bajillion life. Seems hard to lose at that point. Not to mention, I mean, like when you look at this deck, some of its normal plan is actually just really good against the burn deck. Like you said, you've got Chain of the Rocks, which is probably the most like efficient removal spell per mana-wise in the format. You know, it just kills everything. It's kind of like Fatal Bush against them. But when you see uh, Omen of the Sun and the Birth of Melitis, both these cards just like overperform versus the burn deck randomly and are just good in your deck, right? Like they gain you a little bit of life. They prevent some of the early damage coming in from those creatures, and they buy you that time to set up your Luka turn or set up your, uh, what's the name of the Transmogify? Uh, turn you know either one of your big explosive turns it gives you the time to get to that because i would not like playing against burn too much with this mana base it is a lot of shock lands it's a lot of coming to play tap lands. so when you're on the draw we joke about this all the time when you're on the draw you're kind of going third in this matchup because they're gonna go one drop they're gonna go two drop and then you're probably gonna play something you know at that point but yeah, so the incidental life gain definitely really really nice yeah so i mean I don't see this deck game one beating good hands from the burn player unless like everything lines up perfectly. But I do like the way this deck lines up, you know, as the game goes along. Like you said, you get to take out a couple of things like the Agent of Treachery is getting to change into Resolute Archangel seems like just a win to me. Um, you could bring in some Dovin's Vetoes or whatever, you know, just to have some more early, inter- like cheap interaction and stuff like that. But if your metagame, I, I say your metagame, you shouldn't be playing much magic personally right now, but if your metagame was burn heavy and you didn't want to play burn, this is where I would be going as well. I, I think this deck has the tools it takes to beat those, while also having the robustness to go over the other mid-range decks, which is like where I'd want to be with a deck like this. I want to make sure that if I'm beating the quick, the quick fast decks, that I don't just die because my opponent played a five mana Planeswalker. Because yeah. that's generally like your the crutch that deck kind of has. You know, if they resolve a Planeswalker, you're like, well, I'm dead now because I don't have a way to go over the top of this. Yeah, it's the, it's the deck that strikes the best balance there. And that's why I like it more than something like Esper Yorian or, uh, you know, even like the Omnath deck. Like the Omnath deck, I think, it, you know, yeah, you have Omnath. You know, that seems very good against Burn. But if you don't cast an early Omnath, you have nothing against them. Like the rest of your deck is just horrible. 
So I, I'd rather, you know, this deck, you know, has more more consistent game. And, th- and that's sort of the name of it, because anytime you stumble against burn, they just kill you. You gotta, yeah, you gotta and, be consistently doing things early. Yeah, you just, you, and like for this deck to be consistently doing things early, like I said, you're gonna need your mana to line up really well and not take a lot of damage from it. So I think you're a little bit on the back foot, but this deck does have game against it. I think it's pretty good. Okay. Uh, the deck that you mentioned that I was happy to see is Doom Switch in sixth place with Jabberwockies, you know, Teamer, uh, or not Teamer, Sultai Delirium deck. So I've mentioned the last couple weeks on the podcast that. I'm waiting to see somebody else, just not somebody other than Jabberwocky to put up some results of this deck. Jabberwocky has been crushing it. Don't know if he played this uh, this challenge. But it was the is is he is he in rivals? Uh, yeah, I think he is. And there was rival split, so he probably didn't play this weekend. Um, so somebody else took up the mantle for him. Doom Switch did, and you know this just looks straight out of Jabberwocky. Uh, nothing, nothing, you know. Uh, really innovative with, with the list. So, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Very clean. Um, so that to me is a, is a strong sign, even though Doom Switch, another moto grinder, so another strong player playing it. Um, but just seeing anybody else replicate that success is, is a really important sign to me. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're a great player. So it's, it's maybe it does take a great player to be able to win this deck, but you got to believe that they're very good and that they remember to board in their reclamation sages when they're important as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I won that match, Tannen. So how important <laughs> could it have been? I still, it's still probably one of my favorite things ever happened on camera in a match of magic. Like, cause, cause here's the thing. I know you really well. And like, they're, they're trying to figure out what's going on. Well, for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, uh, what, what deck were you playing? It was, I was um, playing uh, Titan Shift. He's playing Titan Shift, and was this the semifinals? This was the quarterfinals. My quarter opponent finals. was playing this like weird Rakdos mid-range deck with main deck Blood Moon. It, it it looked sort of like Mardu Pyromancer, but just cut the white and main deck Blood Moon. Yeah, I remember this deck. Yeah, yeah. And you were searching your deck with one of your search things to try to find your reclamation stage to kill a Blood Moon and then go off. And you just kept searching your deck and kept searching your deck, and the reclamation stage just wasn't there. And the look on your face. When you realize it's not there, it's actually a uh, it's an emote that's in our Discord channel. Like the look yeah, on your face has yeah. been a very fa- I have it saved on my phone under important things as that so I can has a, a reaction in every gif that I can give this up. But it's funny. I remember the first time you went through your deck and you didn't find it, and they're like, "Oh yeah, he's just gonna keep looking." And I was like, "He he bored." I just knew it. I was like, "He boarded it out." Like because I know you too well. And I could see you start to realize, like, "Oh fuck." <laughs> yeah. And for me, you know. When you're resolving a Summers Pact and there's a Blood Moon in play, like, you gotta be careful. So, yeah. once I realize, like, I go to check the sideboard and see the, the Reclamation Sage there, like a dingus, and uh, now I've gotta figure out, like, okay, like, what do I do? And I ended up getting, like, Tireless Tracker, attacking with my Primeval Titan, like, getting my other basics. So, I had two basics in play. I could pay for the Pact. I had to fade a Molten Rain, which was in my opponent's deck. Because there's only two basic forests in the in the Titan ship deck, so you know if they and I was I was very far ahead in this game. I, I honestly like did at this point because I I just have big six six trampler. My opponent as much doesn't have much of anything, and I'm easily crushing. And he like at, at one point he like finds a Hazaret, and on the turn that I, and I've been drawing a bunch of cards with clues. This is like a couple turns down the down the road, and he like made this weird play that actually could have let him steal the game where he. Uh, Discarded a card from his hand with Hazard after I attacked, uh, surgical himself to get down and took a card out of his, another card out of his hand to get down to one so he could block. And then he was going to have like exactly enough on the crackback. But I had found my force of nature. Is that the green one? Yeah, like the literally like that turn after drawing three or four extra cards off clues and just killed the Blood Moon and killed him. 
So we played really, really well to even get, give themselves a, a shot to win from that point because I was still laughably far ahead. But, you know, to me, I was just happy that I calmed down and found the Tyrell's Tracker because that was definitely the right play uh, and, you know, just moved on from the mistake. But obviously just, an, you know, another one for the highlight video. What were we talking about that we got into Reclamate? Uh, oh, t- people are good players. Yeah, yeah, yeah everybody's better yeah. than me. We get it. Yeah, we were just finishing up with talking about it was in Pioneer. Um, you did see one of the Aura's decks make top eight here. Yeah. Uh, like you said, you think it's actually well positioned. I can see why. I don't know if I, I would say the deck is particularly well positioned. It's, it's probably better positioned now than it has been, because it's especially Orzov. I think for the last few weeks, we've seen a balance between Orzov and Selesnya. And I think the Selesnya deck being a little bit more resilient when there's a ton of sweepers around made it a little bit better positioned. But now when there's fewer Orient decks and more burn, the Orzov version having a lot more lifelinkers makes it way better. So if you want, if you're Orzing right, you know, playing Orz decks right now, it's all Orzov. I think it's the better one overall. If you were just going to pick one to build it, like you only have the capability to have one, I would choose Orzov because over a long period of time, it's, I think it's going to be better. Um, but the, it, it's a deck that's just been, you know, been around. I think it's just one of the best decks in the format. It's just good. Uh, so, you know, we're see, we're, I think we're starting to, to see the metagame coalesce a little bit around the decks that are ultimately just, you know, a little bit better than the others. So you're seeing a pretty clear delineation between tier one and tier two, whereas that delineation was a lot cloudier in for the last month or so. Yeah, I think people are just like, you know, maybe trying a little harder in the format. You know, you've, you've yeah. had some they, big they events. They certainly try harder for events like this, yeah. which is another way for you yeah. to distill through the noise is to, to see events like this is why we're going through them. Yeah, I, I like seeing it happen in Pioneer. It's it, it's what what's old is new again has seemed to happen in this yeah. format. And you're seeing the good decks in... I gotta say this. I'm not surprised to see the burn deck do so well. It's it's been a good deck for pretty much the entirety of the format. Once they figured out where to go with it, you know there was the uncertainty the first few weeks of like how to play the red deck. But the cards are just good and efficient at their mana cost. And a lot of these other decks are just taking a while to get off the ground or playing a lot of tap lands or playing a lot of shock yeah. lands, and it just punishes well, all those decks. Well, what happened was we actually didn't have a, co- a cohesive red deck or, or at least a consensus red deck for a while. This is the one that emerged during the companion era if you remember. And I think what happened was the emergence of Luris and the revelation of Luris led people to build their deck with a very low curve. And that was just how they should have been building it in the first place. So, you know, so even when Luris was bad, we had this skeleton of a burn deck that people continued to play and it was just better than the red decks other people had built. And it's it's like, you know, you got to get away from cards that, that are really attractive, like Goblin Rabble Master or Hazaret that have been really successful in the standard environment. But honestly, when you look at modern, you look at legacy, you just look at as formats get bigger, curves get lower. You just want to play an abundance of one and two mana spells. And that's how the burn deck should be built. And we f- figured that out. It just took the Luris to give us that nudge. It kind of reminds me of uh, when we were having to deal with Hogak and then Bridge from the Below got banned. And we just found that like maybe it's like the straightforward aggro, like no secondary plan version of the deck it's just actually better yeah 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 yeah. like just the straightforward linear like because i played it when it had the bridge and i was like man what should i be doing here on dirty should i be like casting this bridge or should it be like you know melding my deck more and then i played the other version i was like oh this is just easy i just killed them yeah just <laughs> cast my spells and they die <laughs> yeah just cast my spells and they die yeah um, don't, don't give yourself the opportunity to fuck it up tannin speaking of casting spells that's all the uh that's all the cards that were in the deck that won the modern challenge there were no lands Technically. Yeah, so, so deck, you know, dredge uh, aficionado picking up yeah. a non-dredge deck. That's that's always another sign. 
Well, let's let's be real. This is a non-dredge deck, but th this is a dredge deck, uh, kind of when you look at it overall. I mean, it's a graveyard deck, but to me, this is not a dredge deck, because dredge, like, this is a deck, this is a belcher deck to me. You're... Oh, okay, that is a much better way to put it, and I definitely agree with you. Yeah. I just look at some of the cards that are in this deck, and, like, the, you know, that you don't hear of or see much, and, like, whenever I see the card Phantasmagorian, like, I only think of the legacy dredge deck. Yeah, dredge yeah, dredge things. Yeah, but then you see, like... Manal salvage Dredge. salvage titan is in this well, one do, do you know how the deck works Shannon? have you seen have you... um i was gonna say i'm gonna go through a few more of the cards and then let you explain it so everybody else can because there's a nexus of fate in here there's the sword of the meek is in here as well i mean there's also some cards that i haven't seen make it into the into the into the modern metagame yet that are kind of cool to see like talisman of resilience you know the new talisman cycle has made it up into here uh ross why don't you tell us so the, the the idea here is to figure out the sort of most efficient way to just kill them once you uh can't resolve Balisterid Spy or Undercity Informer. Uh, I believe it was um, Canister who developed this, and it, it's honestly it's fucking genius. Uh, so you you trigger your narc your two Narcomibas, and they trigger Swords of the Meek. So then your swords enter the battlefield, right? And that means that you're going to have at least three artifacts. You know, you have three swords. Maybe you draw one, but you also have Pentad Prisms and Talismans that might be in play. But you need to get to three artifacts in play. That lets you... Uh, um, Ultimate cost savage salvage type? Yes. Okay. So I'm, I'm following. So so you need three in your graveyard to return the salvage titan from your graveyard to your hand. So obviously you're going to mill over some of the Pentad Prisms and Talismans. Then you sacrifice the three and play it to ultimate cast it. You've already cast a Balistrate Spy or an Undercity Informer this turn. So Salvage Titan is just your second creature for Vengevines. So that means you're going to get all your Vengevines back, and then you just Vengevine them. And if 16 damage isn't enough damage to kill them, then the one Nexus of Fate is there so that you have a card in your library still, and you get a second turn of attacking. But with four Vengevines and four Creeping Kills, so it's really 28 damage. You know, maybe you have a Vengevine in hand, maybe you have a Creeping Kill in hand, you know, you maybe you have multiples of these things. But you have 28, so you have some leeway there. Right. Well, you have the Phantasmagorian in your deck as well, so like that does help kind of alleviate some of that, you know, problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, the, did the, I draw this card too much? The one Phantasmagorian is there so that you can definitely, almost assuredly get your Vengevines back. It also gives you uh, insurance in case you draw the one Nexus of Fate. Because if you draw that, then you don't get the second turn. But the key there here is the artifacts and the one Salvage Titan, and the fact that Narcomoeba works with Sword of the Meek, and the Pentad Prism and Talisman, those are cards you want anyway, because if you're only killing on turn four, with turn four Balustrade Spy or Undercity Informer plus Sacrifice, that's not going to be fast enough for Modern, especially for a deck that's this all-in. Because if you're if you're as all-in as a deck like this, you need to make up for that uh, linearity and the vulnerability that it produces by being really fast. So you need some mana acceleration. So Pentad Prism, Talisman, and Simian Spirit Guide let you, you know, kill on turn three uh, pretty often, sometimes even turn two, right? You can go like turn one, uh, you know, untap land, pay three life, Simming Spirit Guide, Pentad Prism, turn two, second land, kill you. Is this deck like totally your shit? Um, I, not really, honestly. Uh, like I, I, I will. I'm more than willing to play decks like this when I think the metagame is unprepared. And I think in both Pioneer and Modern, the Upsal Spells decks are a bit underrated, and you do see them do pr consistently do well. But it's never a deck that's going to take over a metagame because there's a lot of players who just don't want to play a deck like this. You know, it's just not fun yeah. for them. Um. Uh, the the thing I like with decks like this is anytime I win a game without doing my thing, like if I like cast Pentad Prism into turn three Vengevine and some and like turn four Ven like 
turn four Vangevine two or whatever and just beat me- mediocre beat you to death. I yeah. am so happy. Because mm-hmm. uh, like when when the when this deck started getting popularity, not this version of it, but the original like Vangevine started coming back. It was uh for PT twenty five. Brennan played it in our modern seat. He played the this is back when like Faithless Looting was still legal. Okay, these are very different decks, Tanner. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm they saying, overlap I'm by four Vengevine. Decks. Well, I'm saying, I'm thinking of this deck, and I'm. It, let me get to the point. As I was say, it had, like, Stitcher Supplier, and exact card was, like, brand new. And there were the games where, you know, he triggered a bunch of Vengevines on, like, turn two and, like, did his thing. But there's also games where, like, he would just cast his cards and still beat his opponent or, like, beat a hate spell because of that. You know, he'd have to, like, play around rest and beat something and, like... Those seemed like the really satisfying games when, like, you win the games that you're not supposed to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or the ones where you're not favored by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. I, I won a game with Dredge once where I hard cast a Conflagrate for the last two damage for five mana. There we go. To beat a Rest in Peace. It was, it was excellent. So, the, you know, these decks are, are not to be taken lightly. And I think that I'm sure there's, you know, little things about them that I still don't quite understand. Um, like I actually, I actually lost, um, a game in Pioneer playing Mon- uh, Orzov Humans to the Pioneer version of this deck because I didn't notice the way they could loop. So like that deck plays, version plays two, um, World Spine Worms as it's, you know, card that keeps going back to your library and it plays Haunted Dead, which normally, you know, you think wouldn't do a whole lot, but they had played, uh, you know, they had played Undercity Informer, and they had another creature in play they had randomly... I think, they, yeah, they played turn three um, Prize Amalgam, and then went turn four Undercity Informer, Sack Amalgam. Because, you know, you can sack any creature to the Informer. And that left the Informer in play, and that let them set up this loop. Because I thought I'd, I had, like, you know, put enough creatures on the battlefield, but they couldn't attack me for lethal. And I was like, oh, they're just dead in two turns. They have n- nothing to do. But what they were able to do was set up a loop with Haunted Dead where every two turns they kept sacrificing it and returning it, discarding the two Worldspine Worms, and creating a flyer. And so I actually, like, I, I could have prevented that. I could have dealt with their Haunted Deads, but I just didn't think to do it. Um, and ended up losing by allowing them to set up that loop. And, you know, it takes a while to kill it, to kill me, but, you know, eventually it happens. And they had enough stuff on the ground to make sure I couldn't, I couldn't attack through. But I'm sure there's some, some neat stuff that you do with this deck, but for the most part, like, you just do your one thing and you do it really fast. And, you know, I don't think there's a lot of graveyard hate around right now because there really isn't a lot of dredge and, you know, or, or anything like that. So, uh, it's, I'm sure it's pretty well positioned. That the other thing I really like, you know, we saw Belcher emerge initially after the release of, of, of right. Zendikar Rising and this deck has taken over from it. And the, I think the really important part of it is that the, the key spells are both creatures. So they can't be force negationed yeah, for, for modern really specifically. Uh, so yeah, like, I, I think Belcher is probably pretty bad against Uro decks because it's so hard for you to beat a Force of Negation. Uh, whereas, you know, th- this deck is probably pretty good in the, in those matchups. Yeah, absolutely. And you talked about like, some people don't want to play these decks and some do. And when I look at the deck that is in second place, this is the deck that I actually really kind of want to play. And I could see you being up your alley as well. And this is, I guess should people call it blue, red, like prowess yeah it's it's, it's a prowess there, there's a bunch yeah, of different prowess decks essentially right and because this one's less wizard centric than we've seen in the past because it's more leaning on a, a newer card and Stormwing entity and trying to cast that card on turn two so you're seeing a lot of like free spells. this deck's been around tannin i don't know where you've been no, no no i'm not saying it's new i'm saying just listen to what i'm saying ross it's not making me have to defend everything i'm trying to explain what's going on in the deck but also we also don't talk about it on the show it's a prowess deck with some blue creatures so in. anyway it's got a bunch of free spells with like metamorphose mutagenic growth and uh gut shot so it's just trying to cast this on turn two 
It's also got, you know, Spite Dragon and a couple of these other things, or as some people might know it, Dorette the Perfect Pet. But this deck is totally, like, my kind of shit. Yeah. So the this is a set. Monastery Swift Spear is just one of the pillars of modern right now. You, you can play an Uro deck. You can play a Swift Spear deck. You can play an Aether Vile deck and, and Primeval Titan. Those are those are the four pillars of the metagame right now. I would say the while the the Oops All Spells deck is it's sort of one of these like rogue decks that sits at like tier one point five tier two. Those four groupings are the tier one archetypes, and this is just one of the one of the decks that exists in the the Swift Spear category. It is actually my least favorite of them. I think you, why is that your mana base gets worse. Because you you know you have these multiple colors that can screw you if you just don't find a blue source early and you have these blue creatures and it's time sensitive like you don't want to cast all your spells and then you know cast a, a sprite dragon or whatever uh, and you know that the timing is awkward. I don't think you gain a whole lot from the blue creatures like they're they're fine. Obviously, like you don't really gain much in the sideboard. If there's a couple three spell pierces in this list, that's about all that that you see is a couple counter spells. Um, you know, you, you make your mana worse, and you just make your mana worse. So I would rather be more consistent and be mono-red, or if you want to be a little bit more powerful, I think black is the way to go for a second color and play Death Shadow and Scourge of the Skyclaves and Swift Spear in that deck, which we see in, what, uh, fourth place? Though this list has a touch of white for these Tide Hollow Scholars and a couple Croxes. It's trying to play a little bit more of a longer game. Um, I would prefer a more prowessy style, um, the, the Rakdos list also gets to play Luris basically for free in the, in the, uh, in the sideboard. But I, I would rather be mono red and just, you know, you know, again, like Storming Entity is another card that like just a, a introduces an element of inconsistency. It's really nice when you get to go turn two Gutshot or Manamorphose into it. It's not even like that nice. There's a lot of paths and bolts around. There's actually not a ton of pushes except in the Rakdos deck. Uh, and they also have Bolt. So I could see in metagames that are really push-heavy, having Storming Entity give you a lot more value of being more difficult to kill. But outside of that, I just don't think the the juice is worth the squeeze going for blue. But the, the deck is mostly, you know, the same skeleton of one of the best decks in the, in the format. So you can't go too wrong with it. Makes sense. And in third place, the deck that I know is near and dear to your heart, a deck that you like playing whenever this is good, and this is just green-white company. Yeah, the, the, we see two in the top eight. This is third and sixth. And I've been uh, sort of somewhat silently advocating for this deck. There was a, a week where I missed the deadline to do the modern what we play. And this was the deck I was going to mention. I know Ari Lax wrote a uh, a really good deck guide to it. This is definitely, if I had to play a modern tournament tomorrow or this weekend, this is the deck I want to play. I think it has game against all the major archetypes. I think it's underrated right now, though that might be changing. Um, you know, I think the... Just the, the combo being so clean with Spike Feeder and Heliod hit, and hitting those off of company, the, cons the consistency that now adding Eladomri's Call, even in small numbers, gives you. I love Utopia Sprawl and Arbor Elf being able to ramp into Collected Company quickly. And just Utopia Sprawl being a mana creature that doesn't die to Lava Dart. You know, it, it just helps you get those draws, you know, a little bit more. This deck wins through disruption so often, right? Like, you know, you think about the combo with either Ballista or Spike Feeder and uh, Heliod. And most of the time, your opponent can just hold up a removal spell and disrupt the combo. But there's so many ways to get around that with Giver of Runes, with the Ranger Captain of Eos sacrificing the Ranger Captain and just shutting them down before you go for it. With Conclave Mentor, your you know Ballistas and Feeders just enter with extra counters on them. That's especially good with Feeder. You know With Ballista, you got to give it lifelink, right? 
to, to go off so they can respond to that. But with Feeder, if it enters with three counters, you're gaining infinite life through a removal spell. So that's why you see Conclave Mentor in the deck. And then Oriok Champion, I think, is the real kicker. And I like seeing the sixth place list as four main, and I see zero main, but three in the board for the third place list. You see sort of numbers all over the place on that card. I actually like four main. It's unbelievably good against all the prowess decks, all the Swift Spear decks, right? It's just a main deck hate card, basically, but it works so well with Heliod. It just lets you, you know, spread counters around. It lets you combo faster in the face of disruption. Uh, I think it's just really good. I honestly would, if you had to choose between playing it or Conclave Mentor, and like the six place list plays four of each, which that's unusual to have that many two drops. I guess you see, you don't see Scavenging Goons in the main, uh, which you often see. You only see two givers. Sometimes you see four. Um, but usually it's those slots that are getting trimmed. I would be playing Champion over Conclave Mentor. Because it is also a way to just sort of get extra counters around, uh, just from the extra life gain once you have a Heliod in play. So this to me is just the premier creature combo deck in the format because there's so many different ways to assemble it. The combos are clean. The main combo piece Heliod is basically impossible to interact with, which is unique for a creature combo deck. Uh, and then uh, we obviously have Skyclave Apparition, a card that we've talked about many times over the last month. Uh, is just being awesome. It's great with company. It's great in this deck, just being able to deal with a wide variety of permanents, either a creature that's beating you down to buy time. It's the best white card printed in years. Yeah, it, it answers, you know, various hate cards. If they have like a Pithing Needle or, you know, Phyrexian Revoker or anything like that, it just cleanly answers them. Great with company. So the Skyclave Apparition was sort of like the card that put this deck over the top, in my opinion. It gave it that little bit of interaction that it needed in the exact form it needed. It's reliable interaction, it's interaction that you get to company, and it's versatile interaction. It checks every single box. And so, like, the thing I want to talk about with this deck, I just wanted to ask a question is, I know you, you like this deck, it's what you want to play. I might be personally a little bit worried playing this in a, in a format where, you know, some of the most popular decks are any form of the prowess deck or the, the oops all spells deck and keeping up with that. Is that not something you're worried about? And like, because they're just as fast as you are with even a tiny bit of disruption slowing you down. So the oops, the oops all spells deck does not have any disruption in modern. In Pioneer, they have some discard spells. Um, well, I mean, say that one doesn't necessarily, I mean, I mean, like the, the prowess deck, like one well-timed gut shot or something, you know, like gut shot on Arbor Elf on, with a prowess creature in play is kind of a nightmare scenario, but yeah, like but, maybe you can recover well enough from it. Cause I haven't played the matchup a ton, but I'm saying, do you feel comfortable playing? It's like these two decks that finished above it. I, I do. Uh, so especially against prowess decks, I think you're in pretty good shape. If you had eight mana creatures instead of four sprawls, that would be a huge, that would be a big difference. And I see, like, the, the the versions that have champion main, yeah, you've got to be yeah. a much bigger... You know, yeah, and, I, and I, I advocate main decking champion. But, you know, maybe you don't need to main deck four, though I would right now, because prowess decks are popular, and that certainly helps that matchup. But even without four main deck champion, you're able to slow them down a little bit. Uh, you know, you you have a solid amount of life gain. You have a good amount of removal. You have the forge tender in the sideboard. Um, so the, they're not... like, And you have the ability to just sometimes, you know, kill them on turn three or gain infinite life on turn three or whatever, sometimes even turn two. Like if you go turn one elf and they don't kill it, you know, they try to like get cheeky and play Swift Spear, or they just don't have, a, you know, the removal spell on turn one. You can go turn two sprawl, four mana, collected company, hit my two pieces. Um, so in that map, that doesn't happen as much in the red matchups, but you're able to slow them down. They're able to slow you down. And the game, you don't usually win a runaway game in the matchup. Usually you win the game at, you know, five or less life. 
but you're in you feel in control for most of the game you know that you're there's never a point where you're just crossing your fingers and hoping they don't have it you're just like well yeah they're gonna attack me for a bit i'm gonna you know you use your life total as a resource and then eventually gain infinite life and, and the game ends so that's been my experience playing the, uh that matchup with this deck it's kind of a lot uh like how um Matt Costa years ago described the Teamer Delver against Burn matchup in Legacy, where like it's scary. Uh, you know, I guess you you are sometimes hoping that they don't have like the absolute stone nuts, right? Like their absolute best draws, but that's just how modern works. But Costa used to tell me that like, yeah, the, the burn matchup is like kind of scary. You know, they have some good cards, and I I always win at like three life, but I always win. <laughs> you know, you just have to, you just have to play carefully. But I think it's, if you do play carefully, you win at three to five life almost so all the time. So I'm really happy to hear someone else say that because it's in in, in my experience in in the history of Legacy. Obviously, I was a you know I played Teamer Delver for years and years and years, and then Grixis Delver. But the Teamer Delver matchup, I remember people saying like they played Burn because it had a good matchup against Teamer Delver, and I was just like, who are you playing against? I always win this matchup. And they're like, you always win. I'm like, yeah, I think at the end of the matchup, my 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 life total combined when I win is five. You know, yeah. it's like five or six, but I always win this matchup. Like, you don't play well against Goyf, and then like, like I just always win this. It's it's close. Like, don't get me wrong, I, I lose some games, but it's like it's whatever. And I feel that like it's like you said, you have to play really careful. And people probably don't realize what you mean by that. It's like you have to play really well with the cards, specifically Days and Wasteland, and you have to know what the Force of Will like. It is 100% correct the Force of Will Goblin Guide a lot of times that matchup, like, especially if you're on turn zero, like, oh, if they yeah. lead on Goblin Guide, it's worth, like, four to six damage, so, like, you probably need to yeah. Force of Will it. Your bolt is going to hit the Eidolon later, don't worry, mm-hmm. just Force and the Goblin Guide. Also, just managing your lands is, like, a huge skill in that game, like, like, if you think you might need mana, but you're not sure, you should play, like, it's like, should I play this fetch land or not? Because, like, it's going to deal damage to me one way or the other, but it might save me a damage versus uh, Price of Progress, like, I can fetch and not find, or, like, it's funny that sometimes you're supposed to play an extra land because the extra land is Wasteland, which is not very good in the matchup, but you can Wasteland yourself in response to Price of Progress. I can't tell you how many times I've won a game where they've had, like, four lands in play, and they're like, Price of Progress, you, and I'm like, all right, day's alternate cost. They're like, pay. I'm like, Wasteland myself, take zero. Yeah. Just have no lands in play. Yeah. Or whatever, you know. It's got a, like, you know. Little things. I think it, a lot of it just comes from having a good sense of what the other side is capable of. And yeah. Once you do that, and you're able to play carefully around it. You're in good shape. Managing your lands is really important out of the green-white deck, too. You play four Temple Garden because of the spread-out mana costs. Like, finding places to get them into play tapped and not shocking yourself against the exactly. red decks, that's important. So, like, that that sort of tight sequencing. You don't have to just go balls to the wall, you know, curve out as fast as you can. You know, sometimes you take it a little bit slow, you know, figuring out exactly what turn you want to chump block. You know, to yeah. take maybe taking a chump block with an Arbor Elf where the mana isn't relevant, saving three or four life before they, they can, you know, lava dart it. That's it. that's often good, but sometimes it's wrong. So you got to be you got to develop that intuition. Yeah, I was gonna say the last little bit about it. I had a, a funny one. Um, one of our first team top eights, uh, we played. It was a team open in like Louisville or something like that. You mean Louisville? Yeah, sure. It depends on where you're from. Anyway, yeah, if you're from Louisville, then it's yeah, Louisville. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Nevada, Nevada. Anyway, Oregon. Uh, it was one of the tournaments where uh, I played four Spell Pierce in my deck. In like the, and you know this i'm one of the only insane people that's ever like that does that and i just played four and i played burn either two or three times in that tournament and spell pierce is just literal one blue mana counter target spell yeah. in that matchup. so uh i was very happy to get the matchup but like every time i put it would go like basic mountain i'm like all right we're up <laughs> like we're gonna win so 
So one more list from this top eight that is really cool. I know I mentioned Aethervile as you know one of the pillars of the modern metagame, and somebody kind of uh, I don't know how to describe what they did with it, but they they took Aethervile and ran with it. Oh, know? they they ran with it. There's some interesting cards in here. Yeah, this is a uh, a Yorian Death and Taxes deck. Uh, I think I've talked about this the blue splash in this list. I, I had a little bit of success with it. Uh, a while back with the synergy between Glasspool Mimic and Flicker Wisp. Where you can flicker your one two played as a land, it comes in as a clone, you copy the Flicker Wisp, you know, you sort of generate that that extra body, and that's really nice. So they're continuing that synergy, also playing Spell Queller, and then four copies of Confounding Conundrum Main. Of course, good with Yorian as just a Cantor card, but also like sort of accentuates your mana denial package by stopping people from ramping with their Arosa and Fetch Lands and whatnot. Um, so I, I see the idea here. I see what's going on. But I've got to say, I cannot imagine adding 20 cards to your deck that desperately wants to cast Aetherfile on turn one is a good idea. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Because like every time I play against a deck like this, I, whenever they Aetherfile on one, I feel like I can't win. And yeah. then when they have to play f- like fairly, like when they're casting a one drop, they're casting a two drop, they're casting a three drop and not double spelling me in the first few turns or using their lands as spells along with, you know, Aether Vial, I feel like those are the games I can never win. Yeah. And so I, I got to agree with you. Adding the extra 20 cards has got to be something crazy. Plus, I mean, let's give a shout out to Glasspool Mimic for a second. This is a card that when I looked at it on the spoiler, I was like, yeah, this one's cool. I might have some stuff. And we, we kind of missed this one. And this one has shown Agreed. up as like a four of in a lot of decks. And what it is, it's really, really good. Because yeah. this is pretty much like the phantasmal image of this deck. But it also has the thing of just, I get to play a few less lands in my deck now. So I got this kind of split modal card that's good whenever I have it. Yeah, no, it's 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 great. And it's particularly good with Skyclave Apparition, being able to copy that. You can Violet it and copy a Queller. So, you know, th- there's a lot of ETB effects to use with it here, in addition to the synergy with, with Flicker Wisp. Um, it, it's really, really good in this deck. It's, it's just, uh, I'm yeah, I'm kind of mad at myself for missing it. Because, you know, we both played through the era of Phyrexian Metamorph and Phantasmal Image. And this is just a cheap clone that has significant, you know, utility with the the, the double-faced, uh, you know, land half of it. So, yeah, no, uh, honestly, in hindsight, it, it's no surprise that this has been, you know, I wouldn't say a format staple, but just, you know, a key role player. Yeah, I think it has something to do with the fact that it costs three on the front. And we were like, that's just too much. Like, you know, Phantasmal Images in this format, why would you do this? But then we didn't take an effect to like how much being a land on the other side really affects it. And it just found a good home here. And I, I admit, as much as I, as much as I think I, I agree with you, like I don't know if I would play this deck for the fact that adding the, you know, like we said, the, the extra 20 cards for the Aetherfile deck. I, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for these kind of decks. And I know you might not believe me, but I've played quite a bit of Aetherfile decks in my day and done pretty well with I them. I don't believe I, it. Yeah. It's, I've it, never it, heard it's, you talk about the card Aetherfile in my entire life, Tannen. Because I get killed by it too often. It's like a PTSD thing. I don't want to actually have it in my open <laughs> the hand. The files like, have turned on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just lose to it. Me. Really. But I I can see that. I mean, like, I actually played Green-White Hate Bears in Invitational a long time ago and had a very good modern record. I think I, like, 6-2'd modern or maybe even 7-1'd or whatever. And I just thought it was really, really good at the time. Like, like Shadow was really popular. It had almost no basics in it. So, like, source, uh, I almost said Source of Plowshares, Path to Exile and... Uh, uh, Ghost Quarter were just strip mine and, and uh, Source of Plows Was, was this like the summer where Crixus Shadow was everywhere? 
And, yeah. And Death and Taxes actually did win the Invitational with Brian Cobalt. Well, you know, this is a little before that. This was a little okay. before that and stuff. And so, um, like, I don't, I don't think we had uh, some of the some of the cards that are like, you know, they, obviously we didn't have Giver of Ruins, but we didn't have some of the cards that have come out since then. But I don't know. I just I liked the card a lot at the time, the deck a lot at the time, and it was actually really really good. You know, and some of the hate pieces were just hammers in game one. I, I always liked the the Selesnya lists of that deck for years more than the mono white lists because I thought noble hierarch was so important. Yeah, that card's you know, really good. Yeah. yeah, the decks is all about, you know, getting a mana advantage, so having a mana creature. And it was li- it was also light on good one drops. But now that you have Giver of Runes, um, you know, as a really solid one drop in white, I've moved, I've you know gone back to just wanting to be mono white. And, and also now Skyclave Apparition too. But um yeah, this is it's not even just Aether Vial too. Like you want to have Lean and Arbiter and Thalia early and, and like all your cards are really time sensitive because you're trying to be a disruptive deck, and in modern you need to disrupt people early and often. Like I just imagine playing this deck and opening so many hands of like three lands, spell queller, batter skull, confounding conundrum, glass pool mimic, and being yeah. like, I can't win. Yeah, this bad hands are like dog shit. Can I mulligan? <laughs> like it's a reasonable mix of stuff. You know, even like, the batter skull is me going a little overboard. Make it a path exile. Like yeah. you're you're not affecting the battlefield at all in the first two turns and. Honestly, my experiences with Confounding Conundrum have been very negative. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that, yeah. of that card. Oftentimes, in it ends up being a liability. They just like use it in the end game to start drawing cards. Like Corey did it yeah. to me on Versus Live, where he just like bounced his his Triome late in the game, cycled it when he had a million mana, and I was like, yeah. "Fuck!" And it like didn't like he just like he was like, yeah, "I'll just fetch end step and then cast Bane's did on your turn. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Maybe I would have cast it on mine instead." <laughs> yeah. I gotta say, it, it, it kind of. I'm, I'm looking at the Stoneforge Mystic Tigrets in here, and you have the normal ones, right? Like you have Sword of Fire and Ice, you have Batter Skull, and then you've got this Maul of the Skyclaves. And I mean, maybe this is just so you can get through board stalls. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of situations where this is better than just getting a Batter Skull or getting a Sword of Fire and Ice. And I'm wondering. I mean, it's, uh, maybe the fact that you can equip it to a creature mid combat is really cool. And I gotta, I, you, you know, had that, it right the first time. What's that? You just got to take to the skies sometimes. Like this yeah, deck has a good number of flyers. And, you know, mm-hmm. like if you've played this, this modern deck, you know that your Athalias and your lean and Arbiters sometimes just sit there and yeah, never get attack. to attack. Yeah. There's Be- enchantments. Yeah. Yeah. Like get being able to attack with those creatures in particular. And now Skyclave Apparition as well. Super valuable. The mall is nice. I, I It's probably the, the one I tutor for the least, but it's also the one that you feel perfectly fine naturally drawing. You never okay. Like, that makes sense. You know, unlike the batter skull, when you rip the the mall, you're like, okay, I can find a place to cast this. Yeah, it only costs three mana, right? You know, yeah. you're not you're not playing and equipping it. It's not five like sort of fire and ice or five like yeah. batter skull and stuff. So it, it is often it the second one you get. Like yeah. I'll get the batter skull and then I'll like flicker the stoneforge mystic and I'm like yeah. okay, get them all, send the germ to the air, let's go. I just I, I really want to activate my uh, stoneforge mystic in the middle of combat after you've blocked so bad and just put a put a mall on something out of nowhere because that's yeah. actually pretty. Yeah, that's like actually block pretty a flyer. Cool. Yeah, that's uh, actually pretty cool. I would so. love to do that. But, yeah. you know, so but once again, we, we sort of see modern coalesce too, right? Like It's a lot of the Uro decks. It's a lot of these Swift Spear decks and, you know, Vile decks. And it looks like the, the Collected Company deck and uh, Oops All Spells are sort of like your linear decks that exist in the format, you know, uh, that that are off to the side. But not not a lot of Primeval Titan. I guess that's the big one. Where, where's our first Primeval Titan in this 
in this top yeah, eight. Yeah, I was about to say, I, I see like most of modern well represented in this top eight besides Primeval Titan. And then you just have like Shadow sitting there. And it's like, where do you put Shadow? Do you think it's like actually tier one? Or do you think it's just one of those decks that it's powerful, it shows up, it just has a good weekend sometimes, someone really good plays with it, runs hot, but it's actually not a pure tier one deck? I think Racto Shadow is the best Monastery Swiss Sphere deck there is. And I think it's one of the best decks in the format. It, it very, it's just, it ha, it's, it's not like, it's not a prowess deck in this, it's not as prowessy, you know, as Mono Red or is it? And it's not as shadowy as Jun Shadow or Four Color Shadow, but it strikes a perfect balance between the two. I think it gets to be aggressive and win a lot of fast games, but it also just has individually powerful cards. It's, it's one of those situations, you know, sometimes when you mash two decks together, you get a deck that has both of the constituent parts weaknesses. Uh, th- in this case, I think you get a deck that has both of the constituent decks strengths. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me like a spiritual successor to the Rakdos prowess list that we saw do so well in the Luris era uh, that were able to, you know, kill quickly, but also had this incredible long game. This deck, because, you know, it, it still has Luris, but obviously you know, a much uh, less powerful Luris, doesn't have that same long game quite as well, but it's better at closing games, you know, in the mid, in the, in the mid game because of, of its big creatures. First Primeval Titan deck, by the way, is in 22nd place. So not a good showing for Primetime, which had been doing well recently. I did see that there was one in one of the copies of the Uro decks in the top eight, which is new. I had not seen that before. Yeah, you know, This is like a, a good top-end creature to kind of end yeah, the game. I think it's sort of like a second Hour of Promise. Like it, you've, We've seen one Hour of Promise in a lot of these decks for a while, and Time Warp is kind of the next level on Hour. And I think this is supposed to sort of be like, yeah, it's like the second Hour of Promise. It gets around the gate a little bit, right? Stops, you know, negate stopping yeah. all of your big five and six mana plays, like your planeswalkers and your time warps and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. and it's just a six six, I guess. I, I don't really know. There's one celestial colonnade to find with it. That's kind of kind of neat. Find field a little of the dead, cute. you know. Does find field of the dead and trigger it a lot of times too? Yeah, that's the that's the main thing. So, and there there's two here, but the one colonnade is kind of interesting. I guess that, like in field of the dead mirrors, it's nice to have a flyer. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Again, take take the skies. We figured it out. Yeah. All right. I kind of want to move on but to not, standard. Not in real life. Don't get on an airplane. Oh yeah, for real. All right. Let's move on to standard here. And uh, I you know, before we get into the decks, the one thing that I've noticed the consistency between these three tournaments is how many big names are in all these top eights that I recognize. I'm not even that much of a moto grinder anymore. But you're looking at Phil Hellmuth, you know, misplaced Ginger, and a couple other big names in this one as well as the other ones. So, like I said, the, the big names came out and. I'm not really surprised by the deck that won here, but I do want to talk about some of the card choices that were in it. With Gruul winning in the hands of Phil, I mean, no big surprise, right? It's been public enemy number one since the first NPL split. It's widely considered the best deck in the format, just overall, and it's probably the most powerful deck in the format in the way that it can play at every every mana cost from, from two to five. It's doing probably like the most powerful things in the format. I think it's really good. Um, the things I like to, to point out that are different, um, in this one, there's usually about a few removal spells in the deck, right? They play a couple. It's been uh, squ- Scorching Dragon Fire in the past, but you're seeing Fire Prophecy in this format, and I think that's a good stress point to try to figure out, wh- you know, is Exiling relevant for the other one, or do I want the flexibility of Fire Prophecy letting me draw an extra card? You know, I can get rid of a card that's not good in this matchup or get rid of an excess land or something here late in the game and kind of cycle through. There's that thing. Um, another one that's starting to happen here, because I've actually played this deck quite a bit, on the ladder myself, and I have some opinions on it. And you're seeing people go down on how many questing beasts they're playing. Because I remember early versions of the deck had like four and three, it got down to two, and now you're seeing one. And it has been like the least impressive card for me in in this deck. Well, so I agree that the, the numbers have gone down. We're now, like just very recently, the latest development is starting to push them back up a little bit. 
And that's a reaction to the list that you see, for, the deck you see four copies of in this top eight, which is Esper Doom Foretold. And these, uh, it's the sixth place list, which is Gruul, has three copies of Questing Beast. Um, so, who it, it, we're sort of, again, like, in all three of these tournaments, we've seen the metagame coalesce around only the really top decks. And it, no, nowhere is that more apparent than in standard. It's four copies of Esper Doom, three copies of Gruul, and one copy of Rogues. That's your tier one in standard. It's really a three deck metagame. Those are the three best ones. Of those three, it's pretty clear that Rogues is the, is in third place. In this tournament, it took second place, so a little bit different, but it's, it's in third out of, out of those three. And I, I have to 100% agree with that. Like, it was one of the decks that, yeah, I thought it was good. I thought it was doing powerful things, but I've never been super impressed with it. I've just been so unimpressed with it all the time. And yeah, and like, um, you know, kind of go back to the Gruul deck, I'm looking at it, you're seeing some of the changes start to happen because of things like, uh, this is something that we talked about, I think, two weeks ago in the show, I said that when I was first playing around this deck that I kind of wanted Embrath Shieldbreaker's main, and we're seeing that kind of start to happen now, because when you look at exactly just like, let's talk about the mirror match for just two seconds, right? Do you know what the two most important car- important cards are in the mirror match? It's Embercleave and Greathenge. And if and I, I don't know if you've played a lot of standard lately, I have. If your opponent has a great hinge out for more than one turn, you are dead in yeah. standard. Oh, this yeah. this card is like the new mythic that just ends games. I'm not trying to say it needs to be banned or anything. Obviously, it doesn't. But I found myself playing differently against Gruul now. I'm like using all of my removal spells as sorcery speaks. You never want to let them untap and just cast this before you get a chance to respond. Yeah, especially against Lovestruck Beast and Mammoth. Yes. Because like that's the that's the big thing from them. If they ever go like Heart's Desire on one, anything on two, Lovestruck Beast on three into into Great Hinge, just Lovestruck Beast on three into Great Hinge. That's like the curve for Gruul. Yeah. That is that is and, what it's and, looking and for. Normally, like you'd want to kill like Brushfire Elemental on turn two in that curve, but you might be saving a removal spell to make sure you deal with the Beast on three, so they can't hang yeah. you on four. Yeah, and like you're you're seeing some decks start to play Soul Seer in the sideboard, and I've seen it even uh, show up in, like, the main decks of a deck I'm going to talk about in just a second. It's, like, first, it's not in this top eight, but it's a deck that I played around a lot with. And this is a card that I thought was, like, maybe underplayed a little bit in this format because it just kills all the creatures that are relevant, and there's so many big ones. Like, it kills Questing Beast. It kills Lovestruck Beast. There's a lot more in the format that I feel like the yeah, stress point is... Yorian. Like, in Yorian. That's the one I was trying to... I was going to get to, is I felt that, like the the stress in this format is you're... you're, you're you either need to be killed by um, I'm literally losing my train of thought. Sorry, Bone Crusher Giant for the early stuff, and then you need five damage for some of the later stuff, which starts on turn three with Love Struck Beast. So that's really, really important to be able to do that much damage. I've been playing a lot with that um, that mono red. I guess it's mono red control. I don't know. Todd Anderson was streaming with it. I've been messing around with it because it's 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 a Tron deck. Honestly, it's just a bunch of removal spells, some card advantage, and then Ugins at the top end and Solemn Simulacrums. And I actually thought the deck was in a really, really good spot. And when I say really good spot, I actually thought it was the best deck in standard for about four days, right? And that's right after the MPL splits happened, when Gruul was the number one deck, Rogues was the number two, and Yorian was dog shit. Remember we talked about that coming out where, like, Yorian won, like, 24% of its games. It's unplayable. Rogues and Gruul are the decks to beat. And I played that that mono-red deck and just beat the crap. It was just farming those decks. But here's 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 the problem especially with Esper Doom Foretold stuff coming back, you can never beat a Yorian deck in your life. It is impossible to beat that deck. They outclass you at like, like you can steal some games maybe with an Ugin, but even if you like play an Ugin and sweep their board, they usually just have five more cards in their hand and like a, and like a, uh, you know, maybe some stuff survived the Ugin because they have like, uh, you know, the golden egg and stuff like that. And so their Yorians are still decent enough because most of the time you're having to like minus five 
because you have to kill like an Elspeth Conqueror's death or something like that. And so now your Yorian, your Ugin can't kill anything else of substance that they get to recover with. And they always have five or six more cards in their hand. They just have so much more card advantage than you do. So I'm not happy about seeing this new uh, trend of the Yorian decks making a comeback, but you had to believe it was coming, right? Like Yorian couldn't be as bad as it showed at the NPL. It's just too powerful. Yeah, it was clear that the Yorian decks that existed then just weren't built to beat Gruul because Gruul had actually declined in the in the sort of first week following the ban. Uh, so the they they just you know fell victim to that and it just took a little while to find the right shell for Yorian. It's a really powerful card. It wasn't going to stay down for long. And you know there's widespread agreement now that Esper Doom foretold is that that way the the black removal really helps you out against gruel getting some instant speed stuff doom foretold is obviously great elspeth's nightmare is actually a really big one and Corey has been singing this card's praises to me before versus live for weeks i was gonna say this is the card that's impressed me the most and um i actually have an utter love for this card because i played this for limited format a lot and it was i just slam dunked this card for people at home that might not know because if you didn't play limited in this format you might not know what this card is it's a, it's a saga it's two in a black um, the first page, I like to call them pages. The first page is a uh, destroy target creature and opponent controls with power two or less. There is enough early game stuff for this to target out of like gruel, out of rogues. Like there's there's enough creatures for you to hit with that this is going to always hit. The second part is you get to kind of duress them. You get to look at their hand. You choose a non-creature, non-land card from them. They discard that card. And then the third one is it exiles the opponent's library. So here's what the cool thing about this card is. Graveyard. Right? They're graveyards. I say library. <laughs> library. That, that card would be really good. That card would be bonkers. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, boy, you can do it again. No. Um, so here, here's what makes this card great. is it, it it can affect your opponent at all axes of the game, right? Because there's, there's three portions of the game that matter. What's on board, what's in your hand, what's in your graveyard, right? And this affects all three of them, albeit at different times. But it immediately affects the board. Then it gives you information and slows your opponent down. And then we're actually seeing a format where your opponent's graveyard is very relevant. Nowadays, we're seeing a lot of, like, Oxes, Phoenix of Ash. You know, Rogue cares about how many cards it has in its own graveyard for some of its counterspells and removal spells. Um, you're seeing a lot of people get value from their graveyard. So ECT, this is a little... scavenging use. Yeah, yeah. There's a little extra tact on the end of this, of this card, but all of it fits, right? Like, all of this matters. And so I think this card is very, very good. Not to mention the synergies that it has with Yorian and resetting it and going, you know, going over again, which is another insane way to get value off this card also good with doom foretold you know if that th that third mode is definitely the weakest of the three even though it's often relevant if you just curve else nightmare into doom foretold you got to sacrifice it before that third mode goes off and just you know turn it into into the doom foretold sacrificial lamb so just curves nicely with the deck it really is a uh, one of one of the one of the key role players i think that that elevates this deck and i'm not sure if the lists that existed a month ago were playing this card and if they were they weren't playing it in the same numbers they are now it also plays the card Maze Mind Tome, which is one of the ones that I remember seeing this when it came out of the spoiler and kind of looking over it being, oh, that's kind of cute. And we've we've even seen this card show up in modern decks, but it's starting to show up a lot in standard decks. The mono red deck that I talked about earlier, the non-aggressive, like aggressive, like more mid-range control version, I played four in that deck. You know, these I've seen upwards of four sometimes. It looks like they've kind of settled on like less copies, but two. Another card that's really good, right? It helps you kind of have a sink for your mana. You can scry or draw your way through your deck early in the game. You can reset this with Yorian if you want. All, otherwise, it recoups some of your life that you might have lost if you were getting beat down by the Gruul deck. Just a really good, flexible card at like all points in the game. Yeah. 
to me, it's mainly a concession to the mirror matches where you're trying to generate, you know, as much card advantage as you can, but it does it in a way that doesn't sacrifice your aggro matchup that much. You know, in the control, in the mirrors, you're going to hold back and just draw cards with it as much as you can. Maybe you scry early if you need to hit land drops. And land drop, yeah. Yeah, you know, on a given turn, you know, you'll know when you want to scry because there's a specific card you want to find. Uh, and against aggro, you're going to be scrying aggressively with it, making sure that you just, you know, smooth, smooth out your draws. You don't fall behind and then you get a little bit of life out of it on the back end. So it plays out very differently depending upon what your opponent's strategy is. And it's certainly better uh, if your opponent is trying to play towards the long game. But the fact that it can still be effective if your opponent is aggressive makes it a very appropriate main deck card. We see some lists here adapting them mainly over Golden Egg, it looks like. Uh, makes a lot of sense to me. And that's kind of where we are in standard right now. You know, we have, we see, we have the metagame set. These are, are the three decks. There's a couple others floating around. I think you mentioned Rakdos earlier. That's probably my, my biggest tier two deck. It's my favorite. It's actually the deck that I'm playing the most right now and that I like the most right now. Um, I think the thing that gets people with it and definitely gets me with it, I think the deck's extremely difficult to play correctly. Interesting. I, I can buy that because, you know, you don't have the ability to, recoup any lost advantage on tempo with that deck because you're basically playing one spell a turn. So I think your early sequencing is actually really important. And while there's a bit of an easy mode when you have an early Timurit Calls the Dead, in the games where you don't have that, you got to be really on point. So it's those games that I think are tough. With Timurit, when that deck plays Timurit Calls the Dead on turn three, like things get pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, and like that's the thing that got me too, is like I remember when that card got spoiled, you were all about it. Yeah. And I was like, I don't see it. I don't think because I will say this: when it gets compared, obviously there was parallels drawn to um, the the white one. It was a uh, history banalia. History banalia. I was say it got a lot of parallels drawn to history banalia, and I'm like, this card is nowhere near as good as history banalia, you know. And then now we're seeing that in the right spots, it's actually better, you know, because if it gets synergy off milling the cards, and that's also good, and that's what the red black deck is kind of leaning into, and. I was actually, every time I play the deck and cast the card, I can, like, hear you kind of snicker in the back of my head, like, told you so. You know, like, this card was going to be good, because I definitely didn't see it and th didn't think it was going to be very good. But it is, when it is good in that deck, it is good. And I, I like that deck a lot. I like Rakdos deck. I like Croxa a lot. I don't know what it is, but I, I like that card. And I like I like casting really, hmm, what's the word I want to put here? Cards that are good and limited, but not good and constructed. I like casting those and constructed and having them be good enough, like like Myra Triton. You know, cards that like... <laughs> the, the, the Rakdos deck is definitely a very good limited deck. You know, oh, yeah. It's really good at just sort of attacking, blocking, generating card advantage, using, you know, uh, playing into that long game. You know, if you play a lot of limited, I think the play patterns with the Rakdos deck are going to be pretty familiar to you. I just find sequencing with it can be difficult and you have a lot of the uh, modal lands in the deck and I find that in some games maybe I'm too aggressive of playing them as lands or I'm too aggressive with keeping them in my hand for value and I, I find like three turns later I'm like man I wish I had done the opposite of what I did yeah and it's not super often but I probably notice it more than when I'm just going through you know what I mean it sticks out more in my mind when it happens so that's where I feel like I uh, I probably have some some stuff to learn in those games, and I do f uh, I think the deck's good, and maybe it just st struggles a little bit too much versus you know some of the some of the top end of the deck uh, of, of this format, and it's not good enough. But I like that deck. I think it's playable. Um, I'm still loving seeing all the the difference differences even in the established decks, like you know the Rogues deck that got second place as Vantress Gargoyle main, and 
I thought that was a meme at first because I kept playing against it on the ladder, and I'm like, oh, these people are just trying it out. But when that card's good, it's really good too. If it ever gets to start attacking right away, that's a 5-4 flyer for two mana. Yeah. Also, just a card that gets to play like good defense early against the Gruul decks. You know, I, I mentioned it earlier, but that that's the phase we're in in Standard, is where people are trying to find the subtle tweaks to known archetypes that you wouldn't want to play in a more wide-open metagame, but are really favorable for this more narrowed metagame that we're seeing. You know, That's why you're seeing Fire Prophecy. You know, That's sort of a, a concession to saying there's not as much rogues around as, as there has been. And there's more you know, uh, your index and the mirror and this little bit of value is going to help me out there. I don't need to be exiling as often. You know, that's why we're seeing Embereth Shieldbreaker in the main. You've got to be blowing up Embercleave, the Great Henge, you know, and the, the Glass Casket. Glass Caskets and Maze Mind Tomes against, mm-hmm. you know, th- that deck. And, it, you know, it, it's always nice to incorporate a couple extra ad- uh, adventure creatures here because you only really have the eight. You know, the Rimrock Knight is not particularly good. I have been cutting that card, and most of the lists don't even play it anymore. Yeah, yeah, they, they're they just gone. And now I think you're going to see, you know, numbers on Questing Beast come up because the matchup where it is at its best is, you know, is Esper Doom Foretold. And it's also, you know, it's solid in the mirror still, too. So, uh, you know, the, the metagame is turned around for the, those specific cards. You know, Soul Seer, that's another, you know, metagame card. And the, there's another big target for it. If you look at the Esper Yorian sideboards, you see Baneslayer Angel. Yeah. Which normally everybody, anytime anybody puts a Baneslayer Angel in a deck, especially if we do it on Versus Live, everyone's like, why not Dream Trawler? Why not Dream Trawler? You know, isn't it just a better card? It's not going to die. But against Embercleave, Baneslayer Angel being a 5-5 with first strike when it's blocking, really important. Yeah. You know, just getting that, sometimes it's going to die anyway. Sometimes it actually trades with the creature now instead. That's important. But just being able to gain the life and not being immediate, being immediately dead to the Embercleave, uh, something that's really important. So, you know, Baneslayer Angel coming in, Soul Seer partially a response to that. That if you're playing standard right now, these are the decisions that you need to be focused on. But at this point, you should probably have your deck. You should be confident that it's good. I wouldn't be changing decks at this point. You know, you ride with the the horse that got you there. Uh, but make sure that you're looking into, you know, maybe a different cyber plan for a matchup that you might be struggling with. You know, make those small adjustments to make sure you're prepared for the decks that are showing up. Because right now it's those top three. You know, there's a little bit of Rakdos. You see some control decks around in small numbers, um, but you know, for the most part, oh, Monogreen Mono Food has sort of made a comeback too. Yeah, there's there's a lot of people saying that Monogreen Food might be like the next deck to kind of break in. Like I know Yeoman Five has this article every week about like you know decks you that don't get respect but you should, and that Monogreen is like the one that's risen up the most. In fact, yeah. he's saying like it's a deck you probably should be playing this week. But honestly, like if I were playing standard this week, I would just pick whichever one of Gruel Adventures or Esperiorian that I like the most, and that means Gruel Adventures. And I would just try to have the best list I can for that deck. If you're going to play Esper Doom Foretold this weekend, especially if you have some kind of tournament setting to play in, make sure you've played the Mirror before you get in there. Otherwise, you're timing out. Like you're not going to know what's important. You're not going to know what to do. It's going to be very, very complicated. I. I probably use a fifth of the time my opponents do on Arena in those matchups, and it's quite infuriating, but whatever. You know, like, it's just it's just the way the deck is. Also, I kind of hate that deck, so... But, I always use yeah. more time than my opponents, so... Yeah, well, you, you, you play really slow on average, so... Or, yeah. no, I'm sorry. You play very deliberately. I, I play fast decks, and I play them slowly. But I play the fast decks, so I know I have enough time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, yeah, I'm, I'm interested... These are some of the better times sometimes in Standard, especially when the format's healthy. It's like you said, we're at, we're at this point where, like, we know the good decks. We know the next tier. 
Like, let's let's figure these out and really get in depth. Like, get your hands dirty. Changing these three cards, right? Like, uh, you know, hey, what weekend is Eliminate better than, you know, some other removal spell? Or, like, should I be playing more Essence Scatters than Negates in my Rogues list, you know? Or, like, if, if Esprit really big, is Negate more important in those matchups because I want to just contain the Orion? Or do I want to stop the Orion itself? You know, kind of thing. Like, how, how bad is Doom Foretold? You know, kind of things like that. They don't, or should I play a card that answers both of them? Maybe I should be playing more actual counter spells, you know, like that kind of thing. So these are the metagames that reward the people that have done their homework. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's a good spot. Um, I, I'm glad that we didn't see Gruul just kind of run away with everything because it felt like it was possibly going to do that for a little while. But it does seem like the format is coming around to beating it. And people are figuring out how to beat it now, too. Yeah. And, and it, I don't think the issue was that Gruul was unbeatable. The issue was that it was tough to figure out how to beat Gruul within the other constraints of the format. Like, there, you can build a deck that beats up on Gruul, but you're probably going to get destroyed by Yorian and, um, and Rogues. So it was, it was trying to find the right balance without sacrificing your other matchups across the board while beating Gruul. Because Gruul is a really powerful deck, but it's straightforward in what it's doing. So you can play the cards that match up well against what Gruul is doing, but to play enough of them and have a strategy that matches up well despite their high power level without sacrificing the rest of your matchups across the board is the difficult thing to do. So we, we dance that dance. We've generally figured out how to do it. And, you know, we're at that steady state in standard. We're past that period where every week it seems like everything is changing. And, you know, in those weeks, it's all about having your finger on the pulse of the metagame and being a step ahead. Now it's more about being that half step ahead. You know, you, you can't be that far ahead. You just gotta, you just gotta be tuned a little bit better and you gotta know your deck really well. You gotta know your matchups, know your sideboard plans. You know, it's, it's just all about doing the little things right. Absolutely. And, uh, I wouldn't be doing the little things right if I didn't make sure that we got our two last segments in before we end the show where we have the mailbag submission and the new segment overrated and underrated. I'm excited to get to that one, but let's get to this mailbag first. We've got a uh, long question here from the resident chef, Chef Petro. Do you think that magic might be entering a be careful what you wish for status as standard becomes more complicated and grinding? Uh, more casual players from what I've seen are having a tough time keeping pace with skill-based play and sequencing. Could arena lose its casual base? Do you think people might be uh, just get better for it or lose interest if they are not scaling their abilities? What is a super healthy format? I think you kind of answered your own question here a lot. Um, I do think that you might lose some of the super casual base and playing standard with the way that it is now because um, you have less decks that have just like I win buttons. You know, they have these draws that are not beatable. Um, it's very easy to see what my curve is going to be. And now you have more decks that have more decisions you know like if the game is going longer you're gonna have to make more decisions in the game if your deck is a little bit less powerful you're gonna have to do more things to win in the game you're gonna have to make more choices you have to interact with your opponent a little more i think that's good for magic overall on the skill base level like on the competitive side i want my decisions in game to matter and if i make more good decisions than my opponent i believe i should win the game right so i do think there's a chance that some of that happens to a large scale. I don't think so. I don't think it's going to be too much. They're still going to have fun with the games they want to play. But you are going to be seeing more complicated, more grinding matches in Standard right now than you did in the past where it was literally like, oh, I just this whole game's about Oko or this whole game's about Uro kind of thing. And it's just a different kind of magic. Yeah. Um, that said, you know, Oko games were also really, really complicated. Um, and so I think that's... 
that card kind of goes along with the, with where where the game is going. It's it's clear the level of complexity on the cards is increasing. You know, we had that era in the 2010s where the complexity decreased, especially at the common and uncommon levels. And that that, that was open by design. The the way that was you know, the new world order of design, the way they did things. And to be honest, you know, there's a ton of people that got into the game during a time when it was really complicated, you know, and the, I don't know if that is really what, that's something that's going to drive people away. It might, you know, decrease the number of people that get into it. It might make recruiting harder as far as new players for the game. But that's not, I don't think that's ever the thing that drives people away. It's much worse to have formats that are bland and stale and dominated by broken decks. You know, historically, that's been what's driven people away from Urza Saga to Affinity to Callblade uh, and so on. So if we're talking about leaning towards one way or the other, then, uh, you know, not, not to say that the, the two are, are sort of two different axes that, and what you know, leaning one way doesn't mean leaning away from the other, but to a degree it, it might, because if you simplify all of the, you know, all the other cards, then the, the few that you do push and make a little bit more complicated and powerful, I think tend to be dominant. So you got to have some of that complicated complication trickle down. Um, otherwise the power is going to be in very like obvious, straightforward things, which also isn't particularly fun. So I think it's a, a realization that they push the levers a little bit too far and now you know we're we're in a place that's pretty good. You know, you look at cards like the I, I like to point to those rare and mythic adventure creatures, Brazen Borrower, Lovestruck Beast, Bone Crusher Giant. All have been really powerful, all staples, multi-format staples really. But those cards I think are great and they're fun to play with. They give you a lot of options, you know, and flexibility. They let you use your mana uh and they make play a little bit more difficult, but they're fun to play with and the experience is good. I think those cards were home runs. Agreed. And if we get more stuff like that, I'm in. Yeah. Well said. Uh, second question is from Cody Absent Ballot Priest. What is your favorite card from every format? No overlaps. You get to choose the formats, by the way. So, so if you don't want to answer vintage, like you don't have to answer vintage or whatever. So my favorite card in standard is Brazen Borrower. Um, Pioneer. The Raven Inspector. Big surprise there. Uh, modern. Um... Um, I do like me some Aether Vials. Mm-hmm. Could also say like Thalia, Guardian, Thraben, um, and Legacy is Guy's Cradle. Okay. For me, uh, well, do you have a standard card? Did you say standard? Brazen Borrower. Brazen Borrower, okay. For me, I'm going to have to agree with standard uh, Brazen Borrower. I just, I, I love that card. Um, For Pioneer, I don't know if I have a specific one, but it's like just pretty much any mopey, not mopey, any generic black aggressive creature out of the mono black aggro deck. I just, I like that deck. So, just so like, champion. Yeah, just like, yeah, it's some unassuming 2-1 for one, you yeah. know, that just has a lot of text on it. Like, I just, I just love it. Mutavault, you know, something like along those lines. Oh, I love me a Mutavault. Can I change yeah. my answer? Sure. Um, And then for, so say for, for modern, probably Arclight Phoenix. I, I I think it's like the most happy I've been in that format. Is, is casting Arclight Phoenix well, without you only being did it for like one tournament. 
Well, I played it in every other tournament you didn't see in Modern <laughs> or whatever. Like, and I was playing it like Ross is in here. Give me the birds. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It was just like, it, well, then, like, you you know, you only saw me play Modern a couple times. You know what I mean? Because, like, you know, you were always playing Modern for us. But, like, in my local stuff, I would just play Arclight Phoenix over Tron. So also, because, like, a lot of people in my local area like to play Primeval, like, a bunch of decks that are really bad for Tron, you know, like, yeah, and stuff. Tron so I don't want to deal with that. Primeval stuff. Titan very often. Um, for Legacy, uh, hmm, I wonder what my favorite card is. Thalia Guard through No, obviously it's Delver of Secrets. Um, and I'm going to answer one for Cube. My favorite card for Cube is Restoration Angel. Is this a vintage cube or modern no, just, cube? just cube in general. It's like, it's just like my favorite, like, angel. that's like my favorite type of card in sure. cube. Like, it's just very fair, but very good at what it does. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's and like, it's flexible. If it, you know, you can fit that into just a tap out. I'm going to get value out of blinking my creatures thing. Mm-hmm. you can, you can play it in control deck, you know? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It does. It does a lot of, it's a, per, it's a perfect card for cube. In my very, opinion. Very All right. Card. This last question, uh, also from Cody Evans and battle priest, we're going to talk about this one for two seconds ahead of time. It's what do you think is the best design set of the pioneer era? I already now, know. Now, did, do you interpret this as sets that are legal in Pioneer or sets that have been out that have come out since Pioneer? Has been oh, set, uh, I interpreted it as sets that are legal in Pioneer. Okay, that's that's I, I did a little bit of both. What is your answer? So, uh, Magic Origins. Okay, it's just the best set. The limited format was great, standard around it was great. None of the cards are too powerful, but they were fun. That cycle of uh, double face planeswalkers is great. Not like it's just a home run. Yeah, to have a slightly different answer than you and one that I didn't think too in-depth on, I'm actually, I got to say, I think they did a really good job with the new Zendikar, the, the, the current set in standard. I, th- I think it's Zendikar actually... Rising? Yeah, Zendikar Rising. I think it's, I think it's a, a, a well-done set overall. I remember seeing these land-slash-spells and thinking, oh, God, here we go again. You know, some cards that are just going to have to be banned right away because they're too powerful, and that hasn't proven to be the case, but they've been good, and they've made for interesting play interesting deck design like they've changed with the way that we've thought about magic the way we've thought about deck designing which is really cool uh there's new dual lands in the set that aren't overly powerful but are really cool design and work really well and help out a lot of formats especially pioneer and i think the limited format of it was fine not great i found myself getting really bored with it very fast but as for for the design of the set especially with the problems that we had with the set before it, I wouldn't be surprised if we got out of the set without a banned card other than uh, Omnath. Because you know, like, obviously that was just a, a huge mistake. But if you just take that out, which is like, I get why they why it happened. They're supposed to make these big splashy cards. You know, Omnath has been in every one of these. He's like, he's like an icon, or, I'm sorry, it's an iconic thing in these sets. It was just such a glaring mistake that I think that you can actually look past it. I think it's, I think it's weird to say it because usually the other way around, it's such a glaring mistake you can't look past it. I think it's such a glaring mistake that you can actually say, I feel like this one was strong-armed through at some point where they were like, someone had to say at some point, hey, maybe this is too good. And they were like, whatever, just print it. Because I know that's happened in the past. And I know that the the players at R&D have in the past rallied against a card and they've been told, we don't care. This is going to get printed anyway. Deal with it. Make, make the stuff around it work. Like, I know for a fact that Sphinx's Revelation, when they were shown the card, they were like, we would... Uh, I, th- I think the wording that they used was, uh, we'd appreciate it if you did not print this card. And they were like, well, it's going to get printed. Do whatever. And it's actually why Thoughtseize got brought back in the next set. <laughs> or yeah. one of the reasons Thoughtseize got brought back in the next set. So, I overall, got to say that one. Um, I, so, I'll also say Khan's Hero scores pretty highly. Okay, Khan's Hero definitely. 
that that's a really good one too for for real um i was gonna say i only played like one limited event of that one it's a really good oh, memory of mine i definitely liked it format. So, yeah it definitely was it was a once we figured it out it was really good it was, it was difficult at first because your mana bases would be really bad yeah and then like once you figured out that like oh you should all be playing like two of your three colors and possibly like splashing the third wedge or whatever like yeah that was really so um i'm actually super excited to go into our next uh, little segment here the overrated underrated segment this is another channel in our discord that you can just put a uh item in there anything you want to talk about it and ross and i will debate why it's overrated or underrated we're only gonna do we got about 30 to 40 of them in here so we're gonna have a little bit of a backlog because i don't think we're gonna get to all of them tonight but we're gonna try to get we through will a get few to all of them eventually things. yes and soon. uh soon yeah soon and uh the first one from ss squirrel is curling the sport not hair or the exercise very underrated curling is awesome um i will say that my answer depends on my alcoholic intake level it is the best sport on ice not close where is Jim Davis? He will fight you. It is. I've told him this. Curling is awesome. Did he try to get you kicked off the team? I love curling. It's the only Olympic sport I'm excited to watch. I don't really care about any of the others. I like handball during the Summer Olympics. You, it's really difficult to find. But I like handball. But curling, it is, it's intricate. It, there's, like, precision. There's the modicum of athleticism, you know, just enough to make it interesting. And incredibly strategic. It's super fun to watch. Um, I I love it. So um, I, I so you're you're gonna say overrated? Underrated. Of, underrated. Underrated. I'm sorry. Underrated. I'm because of your answer. I'm gonna say overrated because of all the reasons you said and the fact that you're just wrong. All right. So next one, Quinn O'Grady. Uh, he says Genshin Impact. I believe you do not even know what this is. Correct. I don't. I barely know what it is. I know that it's a game because I've seen that people are streaming it on Twitch. So we're gonna have to both say shrug medium push <laughs> because we don't know what it is not applicable <laughs> all right so the the next one that's brought up this one made me giggle quite a bit it has the most reactions in uh discord if you know what i'm talking about you can react to a post this is from gold and uh, i'm gonna let you answer this one and i might answer it myself but the topic for over and underrated is tan and grace okay so if you notice obviously once somebody put you they had to put me as well and that came yeah, the next yeah. day yeah. uh so why don't we why don't we group these together and sure. I, I can answer for you. Well, my I honestly, I'm going to say underrated for you for the next show. But that for way, the same reason. Hold on one second. I'm a, uh, I, I kind of talked to everybody. I, don't, I want your answer to be by itself. I'm going to save Ross Merriam for the next show. That way we're not just, it's an, it's not all one show. So we'll do it on the next one. Okay. Well, I th- I wanted, I wanted to group them because my answer is the same for both for the same reason. Okay. I think we're both underrated because there's a narrative, surra- there's a similar narrative surrounding both of us. One, okay. you without ever getting a trophy, and me for just losing in ridiculous ways. And so okay. it's, a, it's, an, it's an overarching, you know, it's a negative narrative. And it being the good sports that we are, we, we, you know, steer into the skid and lean into it. But that does cause people to underrate, you know, our successes. And those kind of get ignored. So I think for that reason, we're both underrated. I like that answer because it makes me sound like a superhero way more than I am. It makes me sound a lot better than I am, which is great. Um... I mean, there's nothing else to do but steer into it, right? Like, am I supposed to get mad that I've gotten second place a lot? Like, you know, not gotten a first? Like, yeah, it sucks. But there's worse things to be known as the guy who always finishes in second place. Yeah, in a a sport where finishing in the top eight is the mark of success, you know, always finishing second is pretty good. Yeah, always getting there. I mean, like, there was a season where I top eighted half of my opens. You know, I was like like eight for 16 or eight for 17. So maybe a little less than half, whatever that number is or something like that. Um, it's like 42, I, I gotta, I gotta believe if, 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 you, if you hear those numbers, 
and you thought maybe overrated, maybe you talk about it a little bit the other way, other way, maybe underrated, but also just matters what it is. And I, ca- I can't really answer that. I think for a lot of stuff, I'm probably overrated. Uh, constructed, probably overrated. Limited, right now, maybe like a push, but in 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 the history of, of my career, massively underrated. Yeah, the thing at limited just doesn't matter anymore. Well, it used to matter. You I know. know, that's what I'm saying. When it, back when it mattered, I was massively underrated. You know, so I don't know. Um, the next one is from JPA35, Huey Long. The, the, the kingfish himself. I don't know how to answer this question other than like he was a very important political figure from the early 1900s of Louisiana. So like, you know, I should know more about him than I do. So maybe he's underrated because of that. He was also assassinated. So maybe he's underrated because of that. Cause like he, he would have done more with his life, but we don't know how that would have worked out. The, so. the book on him is generally like did good things for working class people, uh, you know, use some means that people weren't too happy with. And for the most part, if that if that is indeed true, then certainly underrated for me. My problem is I just don't trust the prevailing historical narrative about anything anymore. So until I have a define a definite narrative about him and his life that I trust, uh, you know, I will hesitate on being very firm. But tentative, underrated. There's also been some um, recent discord around him and his death. They think that he might not have only been shot by the person trying to assassinate him. They think that he might have been caught in a crossfire with some of his bodyguards because, uh, you know, there was more than one bullet or whatever that went into him or a bullet wound. But the person who who killed him uh, was shot something like 50 times. And I've got to... I've got to wonder how many bullets are stray yeah, <laughs> at that hard, point. Hard to just hit one the one target when they're right yeah, next to yeah. each other and you fire exactly. that many bullets. Uh, the next one, I'm going to let you answer this one. This is from uh, Brad Suffer, I guess is how you... Yeah, Brad Suffer. Uh, the Electoral College. Okay, so I think it's pretty clear that to anyone with either... Uh, with both a brain and a conscience, that the Electoral <laughs> College is complete bullshit. And so um, within that group... The Electoral College is appropriately rated as the complete horseshit that it is. But there are people who, for either ignorance or selfishness, cling to it as this like beacon of Republican democracy. And when I use the word Republican there, I'm not referring to the GOP. I'm referring to Republic, you know, of or relating to a republic, the form of government that we have, or at least like the form of government that we sort of, that the framers sort of set up. But the, here's the thing that gets me about the Electoral College that, and, you know, I, I actually, fun fact, I wrote a paper in high school about abolishing the Electoral College because that's in my, you know, history. This, this conversation has been going on since 2000, right? That was the, uh, there's actually been, so it's 2000 and 2016, we know where the winner of the Electoral College didn't win the popular vote. It's happened three other times in U.S. history. The first was 1824, the corrupt bargain between Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams that pissed off Andrew Jackson. Um, then 1876, when Samuel Tilden lost to Rutherford Hayes, and Hayes made a deal with the South to end Reconstruction in order to for them to throw their support to him, and he could win the presidency. And then 1888, when Grover Cleveland lost to Benjamin Harrison, uh, Cleveland ended up winning the election four years later. That's why he served two non-consecutive terms. I want to make one quick note right here. Ross has no notes right now. This is all just coming off the top of his head. Anyway, continue. Yeah, I just know all, all this. Um, so uh, so it's happened, you know, uh, three other times before the modern era. No, uh, didn't happen in the in the 20th century, unless you count 2000, part of the 20th century for whatever reason, because you're trying to be anal. 
uh, because there's no year zero. But um, regardless, like this has been a this conversation has been around for a while, and the conversation is exactly the same. And there's a very ignorant argument that gets put forth from the pro electoral college side that is completely ahistorical, and, and it's plainly so. Because the argument is that, like, if the Electoral College didn't exist, then, you know, the big cities would just rule the election and we would, the rural elements of the country wouldn't have any power, which one isn't actually true. They would have power in proportion to their population, which is, you know, perfectly fair. And, uh, um, but the, the reality is that they just want, you know, more power. And, like, why shouldn't, you know, like, it, it, Right now, we have a system where the Electoral College places undue power into individual states that are key for any given election, whether it's, you know, it was Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida for a while. Now it's sort of the upper Midwest because of the last couple of elections, but it, it shifts a little bit. But there's always some small section of like four or five states that decide the election and a ton of campaign resources get put into those states. So this one, you're describing a problem that's going that you claim is going to exist if the Electoral College is abolished that actually already exists and is caused by the Electoral College. But you just like the people that it's favoring this time instead of the people that would favor if the Electoral College went away. Two, it's not favoring them by that much. And the thing that infuriates me the most is this argument that the we're avoiding this problem that you've uh, supposed is going to happen that actually already exists. So you're already wrong. But you're saying that it was set, the framers set up the, the government this way and the Electoral College this way specifically for that reason. Like they had the foresight to understand that we were going to have California be, you know, so populous when it, it, we're like 60 years away from it being a fucking state. You know, if you like every like this idea that the people that wrote the Constitution were trying to come up with this noble democratic form of government and did a really good job of it is just bullshit. They were trying to form a country for them to make some fucking money, and they didn't like paying taxes to the king. And there were different factions of them with different interests, and they had to go in all into one place and compromise over those interests because they needed the combined power of all of the colonies in order to form a stable government. So they have to, you know, cede some things that they didn't want to cede to, to make sure the southern states could join, and the Electoral College was one of them. And like it was just a compromise between competing classes of people that were trying to form this new government so it would be stable. And it's a, solely a solution to a problem that existed in 1788, 1787. So the, the idea that it was devised in order to solve a problem that exists in 2020 is just comically nonsensical. And so you're it's just utterly ridiculous. So I'm actually just sick of the discourse that surrounds the Electoral College because it's just filled with historical ignorance. My answer, that one right there. So there we go. All right, for the next one, zero cool. Um, I'm, I'm going to just, Jeweled Lotus, Ross, quick answers. Uh, it's definitely a little overrated, I think, in terms of power level, but I don't give a shit. I'm going to say underrated. I think it's underrated. Basic planes, however you want to interpret it. Um, so I will say a, a little underrated. I like my white aggro decks, but I also think Basic Planes has a lot of historically great arts. The windmill planes in the Eurocycle, the thundercloud planes in Odyssey, uh, the the wheatfield planes in Invasion from John Avon. So art-wise, which is what I care about with basic lands, planes ranks really highly. Yeah, the flower one that just got released, I think, on Arena or whatever today or whatever. Huge, huge fans. So I'm going to say slightly underrated as well. Again, another one you can interpret any way you want. Kansas City. Uh, so I've never been to the city. Mm-hmm. Um, their barbecue is supposed to be pretty good. Um, but the song Kansas City, which is a very early rock and roll song, is really sweet, so underrated. 
I'm going to also say underrated for the fact that, like, their sports teams are great, their food's great, and uh, I want to go. I want to visit and see some stuff. So, anyway, and I've also got some Kansas City gear uh, for the baseball team as well. So, I actually went to some of their playoff games the year they won the World Series when they were playing against the uh, the Angels in Anaheim, and the entire stadium's in swathed in Angels red, and myself and three other people are sitting there in that, like, Kansas City blue, and that was a lot of fun. It felt like an SEC football game a little bit. All right, next one. Uh, that was from uh, S Wallaby thirteen, by the way. Quinn O'Grady with another one. Cooking with MSG. Incredibly underrated. The only same. reason there's a stigma surrounding MSG is because of racism. Yeah, same. Um, Leo the Modern. Uh, they got two. Let's start with menace. The keyword menace in Magic. I I don't know. Yeah, same. Uh, the next one I have a lot of opinions on though. I'm gonna let you answer first. Taquitos. Uh, overrated. I think they're severely underrated. Have you ever had breakfast taquitos? Everybody lo- like. How are they underrated, though? They're rated very highly. Uh, see, I'm not sure they're rated very highly, and I think they're great. I, I'm So this is just our perception of their rating, I think, is, is clouding our judgment here. So we disagree on how they are rated, and thus we disagree on whether they are underrated or overrated. They're pretty sure. good. Sure. But they're not like they're not great. They're fine. Let's, let's say they're let's say they're medium rated. They're rated exactly down the middle. Mm, but uh, who knows? We're, we're going to have to run a poll. No, we're saying, gonna, let's, we're, we're, uh, no, I'm saying let's say the basis for it—they're rated down the middle. Do you think it's more? Do you think it's more on the other side? Sh- sh- that's too high or that's too low? Well, they're above average taquitos as okay, a thing. Go. So, so let, I'm assuming they're underrated from that from okay. that state. We're, no, you're going to have to send, send out a poll from the, the <laughs> sure. MTG Rants Twitter account, <laughs> sure. asking people to rate taquitos okay. by whatever metric they want. Make the poll like you know zero to you know one one no, to five no. or whatever. So put overrated or underrated? No, but... because that's not the goal here. Okay, the goal so is you want to, me to figure put out zero through ten. Yeah, one to five is fine. The goal here is to try to figure out how people rate taquitos. Okay, so and so the the and you try to find the over under at two point five. Like how many mm. people answer two two? I just want to see exactly where they rate them because then I can sure. tell you whether definitively whether they're underrated or overrated. Okay, we can do that. We'll we'll, we'll re- reconvene on this next week after the Twitter poll. All right, next one is from Lemon Lemon. Uh, cold brew coffee. Very overrated because all coffee is overrated because it's disgusting. Um, I don't disagree with you about all coffee being overrated, but I'm going to say that this is very underrated because I prefer this to, this is my preferential form of coffee. Yeah, but so, everybody loves cold brew coffee. I just don't like hot coffee very much. Like, I just don't. Like, this is like the thing. Everybody talks about it. They're like, oh my God, it's so good. A cold brew coffee. It's the best all right, thing. So, so you're saying, you're saying it's overrated because of the hipster coffee thing. Okay, cool. Yeah. It's just all like, right. well, it's just very highly rated. I can't imagine it's like that much better than fucking coffee. I was going to say, you and Ryan Overture for you to get into a giant fight over this. All right. Yeah, uh, we would we would fight over coffee because I just... Colonel Grady with a couple more. Being in the MPL. Yeah, sure. Uh, being in the MPL. Um, I mean, it's it seems fine. I There was that there was like a tweet recently about hearing people that like didn't enjoy playing the splits being in the MPL. And like, uh, like, you know, it's hard for me to evaluate this from the outside. I don't know what it's like to play in the MPL, but, you know... That seems fine. Um, my answer is going to be overrated for all the shitty reasons, all the shit that's going on with it. Underrated for the paycheck for being a Magic Pro. Yeah, I'll, you, I'll, I'll take you that. Get pay, you get paid pretty well. You know, th- just rel- just you, here is you know, the kind of thing is like I I wouldn't want to compare being in the MPL to just like being a Magic grinder where you have a lot of control and it's not it's not really a job. I want to just like compare it to an average job. Being in the MPL sounds pretty good. That's where I'm evaluating yeah. it. And like that's what I mean. if I'm evaluating it from there, severely underrated. Yeah, right. Like, there, there are things I don't like about my job, but I like it more than most jobs. Yeah, and yours is magic related, and so yeah. like when I think about it versus like my real life job, I would much rather be in the MPL. Uh, weighted blankets, underrated. I'm gonna say overrated, but 
Uh, Shiracha. Uh, um, pr- properly rated. It's great, and everyone knows it's great. Um, I think that it is properly rated, except for the amount that it's used. And I think it's overrated for the amount that's used. I think people put too much on their food, and I think that like a little tiny bit less is correct, especially with the it, depending on the type of food, obviously. But it's there more to like, in my opinion, be an ex- like an accentuate the flavors that are going on and not dominate the food oh yeah if you put too much it just tastes like it's like like you ever seen people eat like chicken like here's an example like people eat chicken nuggets but they just like dunk 90 percent of the nugget into ketchup or whatever like you're not eating chicken nugget anymore you're eating ketchup people do that with with a ton of different sauces and to me if if, when i see people do that i just think all you want to do is is taste sugar because most of the sauces are, are made with a ton of sugar so you're just trying to jam sugar on whatever you're you're dipping it in but yeah i i completely agree you know you, know, you just, just need a little bit. Uh, red lights. Mm, uh, red lights very, very overrated because they suck, and we should have more roundabouts. But for whatever reason, people in the United States don't like them. I, I, I can buy that. It's, that's a good enough. It's objectively true. I like this was a. I had like friends in college do some competition where like the basis of the competition was you know dealing with the you know a stoplight versus a roundabout. This is objectively, and there's been a ton of even high level studies done about this, like. It keeps traffic flowing and, you know, it doesn't slow people down as much. There's less, there's fewer accidents. It's just a much better system. So yeah, yeah red lights suck. Yeah. Uh, and the last one for today, the color blue in magic. Um, honestly, at this point, it might be a little underrated. That's actually my answer. And for partially that and the reason of how can you, how can you overrate something that's just the best <laughs> that just well, brings you the most joy? You know what I mean? Like it, I can't underrate my dog. My dog can, can, I mean, overrate. My dog can never be uh, uh, overrated because it's just the best dog. It's my favorite dog in the world. She, she is literally like the light of my life, however you want to put it. She's my favorite thing in the world. So like, how could that ever be overrated in my opinion? You know what I mean? So like if, if the color blue and magic is the best color, which it is, and then it's also like my favorite thing to do in the game, it's just always going to be underrated for me because other people don't know. They can't understand the joy that it brings to me to tell people no so many times or to snapcast or something on them. And you get what I'm trying to say here. Okay. Well, my answer is a little bit more, uh, let's say, nuanced. Sure. It's not overtly Benny related. <laughs> yeah. So the thing with blue in Magic is that it was obviously far and away the best color for the first 10, 15 years. Non-debatable. Yeah, not even yeah. debatable. And, you know, by a large margin. But here's why. It's because card advantage, which in reality is one of the fundamental resources of the game itself, was devised when the game was initially made and designed as an aspect of the color blue. And as a result, blue was so heavily advantaged over the rest of the colors because it was so significantly better at a fundamental aspect of the game. This was exacerbated by the fact that the early design was also bad at uh, playing, you know, a tempo game, a non-card advantage-centered game. So, you know, the early part of Magic is really just blue card advantage and broken combos, for the most part. There's a little bit of aggro around, uh, especially in, like, Tempest block, but dominated by combo de- broken combo decks and blue uh, control decks that are drawing a bunch of cards. Now, obviously, since creatures have gotten better and card advantage has been developed into the other colors, in particular green... The balance has uh, gone, you know, the game has been rebalanced. Blue is no longer the, be- the, you know, easily the best color. Sometimes it is very good. Sometimes it's arguably the best color in a given format or on a given weekend. 
you know, it's, but it's just one, one of the others in a general sense. But I think that actually makes blue underrated because people fail to appreciate the actual aspects of blue, you know, the bounce and tempo aspects, the value of counter spells, how to play with and against them, all the stuff that does make blue unique. So I think those things have been underrated over the years because they've been out overshadowed and outshined by the preponderance of card advantage that was afforded to the color. And we're getting around now to appreciating those things. And I in particular do appreciate them. I love blue aggressive decks. Oh yeah, don't even get me started. That's that's my shit. So I uh, think we're gonna stop on it uh, this week. We'll get to some more in the future. Just for uh, I think everyone can access the overrated, underrated section of the Discord. Make sure that you're in there. Um, you know, post a topic that you'd like to hear. Uh, whether we think it's overrated, underrated, and then if you hear one on the show that really grinds your gears, or you really, really uh, agree with, make sure you put it in the comments, and maybe we'll bring it back up on the show so you can hear why I was right and Ross is wrong. Just a little bit more in the future that kind of thing so <clears throat> I'm, I'm a big fan of this i think we should make this a a segment on practically oh, yeah. every show we're doing this every week this is great this, uh this was completely Just fire the hot take cannon off yeah this is brent you really stumbled onto something here you are a genius like you said you have a very large brain thankfully your head is gigantic enough to hold that large brain that you have he was making the joke that's actually why he's bald his his head is so big it holds so much brain that it had no more room for anything else yeah so pushed out the roots that's where the hair went. Yep. I was going to say, that's probably why you're losing your hair too. Like suddenly as you like gain more knowledge in your life. That's, that's, is that the joke? Is that why we become bald as we get older? And yeah, no wonder Brennan is a full head of hair. Yeah, no wonder. Yeah, he's just a free <laughs> face, right? <laughs> that's why I'm starting to go bald. I'm starting to lose it. All right, anyway, joking. Um, <clears throat> not joking. Yeah, this not is joking. science now. <laughs> joking, not joking. Is that like a new, sorry, where, not sorry. But... Where, where are we getting our Nobel Prize? We yeah, figured yeah, it out. Yeah, we figured it out. <laughs> where did we get our Only Nobel stupid prize? people are bald. Oh my God. All right. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, Ross, did you get a chance to try out the beard oil yet? I have. And? It was fantastic. Okay. Tell me about it. I mean, it it literally just met all of my expectations. It, it was, it you know, it did exactly what the oil was supposed to do. It was easy to use. I've had actually some issue applying beard oil in the past. Um but this what do you one, usually like, do with it? Do you do it with your hands or do you have like a, a brush or something? I actually, uh, you can either like put it over the comb and comb it in. I actually kind of do both. Like I'll put a little on the comb just to get started. And then I'll feel if I, and if I need a little more, I'll work some in with my hands. In. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so that's basically, that's what I did. And my beard looked fantastic and it just, it made it comb easy. It made it feel good. You know, the, the best part about having a beard is, is just stroking yeah, the the, the contemplative chin, chin yeah, chin yeah. Stroke. yeah, yeah. It, it makes that a lot more enjoyable because your hair is you know uh, well separated and neat and it's smooth and it, your fingers just glide right through it. So if you're if you're a chin stroker like I am, the beard oil is <laughs> is a new must. So we're obviously talking about products from our sponsor Barrister and Man. Make sure you check them out barristerandman.com. Um, you can still use our code on there. It's uh, code PioneerCast for 15% off. I don't think that's changed yet. We're going to make sure we're going to see the longevity of that and see if they maybe change it with the, the new name of the show going forward. But for right now, the code should be PioneerCast. We'll tweet out anything differently if it's different, if it changes in the future. The reason I bring that up and the reason I say this is no bullshit. I actually see a difference in your beard from when you've been using it when you haven't. It looks better. I'm not saying your beard looked bad before, but... It looks more well kept. I so, think is is yes. the phrase I'm looking for. Yeah, just look, everything. It just because it separates the hairs, everything just looks neater. That's okay. always the biggest problem I've had with a beard, right? Like, because you've seen me grow hair out when I haven't shaved for like two weeks, and I get a little scraggly. You know, I get a little on the 
non-well-kept looking side. And mine does too because my beard hair is curlier. Yeah. That's not a good look for me, Ross. I don't know if you know this, but I'm like, that's not my look. I'm the like well-kept pretty boy look kind of thing. You know, the clean cut, like. Yeah, all-American. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) That thing. Yeah. I try to, you know, you get to see me at like in my my PJs and stuff where we're doing this, you know, like. Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or less, you know, but (laughs) anyway. Um. But, it, you know, it's definitely a product that I've told you about this. If, if I were to grow out a beer, it's something that I'd be interested in because, you know, I've had you as a co-host on this. One of my friends in the past, Nathan Zamora, he was a big proponent of it. And he would do it daily. I mean, he's got one of like, you know, the big, big, not like ZZ Top type beards, but I'm talking like it, it comes out. Yeah, love, there we go. Lumberjack. That's what we're looking for. Like the beer that you could hide, like a bird could build a nest in. Yeah. You know, like like the, the big ones coming off. And so... uh Awesome that they're they have these products that you you like it. I'm I'm really glad that you like it and that you uh, you're getting to use it more. Um, I'm still stuck on some of the ones. I am excited about uh, something I'm about to do though. I am almost done with one of my soaps. Like it's it's on its last leg. You know it's like really hard to use because it's gotten so small at this point. And I've got like three new ones that I'm looking forward to trying out. Some different smells, some different flavors, whatever you want to call it. So definitely look forward to that. Again, Barrister Man, check them out if you haven't checked it out. Uh, we've been talking about it on the show quite a bit. Huge fan of their products. I recommend you check it out as soon as possible and get some orders in as soon as possible. Make sure they get there for the holidays. We're getting into, what is it, about mid-November now already? Don't tell me. I Here's the funny thing. Uh, you know Brian Basoko, good friend of mine, two-time Open champion Brian Basoko. Uh, I have to say it, it's contractually obligated, especially since they beat us in one of those finals. Um, I was talking to him the other day, and I messaged him like, hey, what are you doing? And he said, wrapping Christmas presents. And so I was like, wait, what? And he goes, yeah, man, with COVID going on and all this stuff, I'm not ordering anything in December. And I was like, you are the smartest man alive. Because I <laughs> always wait way too long every year. And I'm always late. And it's got to be even worse this year, right? There's so much shipping. Like, did I tell you about this? My V8 didn't arrive this month from Amazon. It just got, I, look, hey, it got sold out. I want to believe that I had something to do with it. <laughs> I need to contact them again. I had to literally go buy some at like the local Walmart because it was also sold out at my my other local grocery store. Because I always go to the local grocery store and try to like support them. And then if they don't have it, I'll go to Walmart or whatever. Anyway, but make sure you check out Bearser Man products that can't be found in the store. All of them are super healthy, well-made products by the hands of a magic player. So you know that they're really well taken care of. And I'm just a big fan of understanding what goes into my products. Like if you look at the ingredients list on this, it's they're short and there's not a lot of words that I can't pronounce or numbers where I don't understand why there's numbers in my words. <laughs> and keep in mind, that's saying a lot because Tannen really can't pronounce a lot of words. I really, really can't. I know what I can't and I just steer around it. Or I say, <laughs> it, you know, there's this, there's this, um, so you, you know that I used to do like commentary for a living and like talk on mics and stuff. And there's little things they teach you and like things that you pick up along the way. If you were unsure of how to pronounce something and you have to pronounce it, you will almost always hear the person's voice change or they'll speed up to where you, you're like, wait, did he, did he mispronounce that? Wait, that was, too, <laughs> that was too fast. They take like a four syllable word and they say it in three syllables. You know what I'm trying to say? Like they, 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 they just shorten it and say it real fast. So I'm definitely guilty of this myself, especially when it comes to people's names, because I just have no earthly idea. But one thing that I do know is that Barrister Man products are great. You should check out their website, use our code. We'll be tweeting about it more in the future. I recommend you do it as soon as possible to try to make sure that you get your stuff in for the holidays, because I think these are great gifts for that special dude in your life, that friend in your life, anyone. Uh, I, I Keep in mind that Tanen's address is one, yep. two, three. <laughs> it's, it's also it's also my birthday in a couple days, too. So My, my birthday, birthday is in a couple only, weeks. It's what? My birthday is in eight days. 
The only reason I even know that my birthday's in eight days, because I'm one of those people, is last night, Natalie, my wife, was just like, hey, what do you want to do for your birthday? And I was like, wait, what? Because, like, A, I, you know, I, I didn't realize how close it was to my birthday. B, the, the thought of going doing something right now, I'm like, what are you, what are you, crazy? <laughs> so, uh, Stay like, in. That's, that's what I want to do. Not get COVID. Just get, I'm going to get her mom to cook me something, because A, her mom's an amazing cook, and B, like, God, I love her fucking food. And, like, that just sounds great. I'm going to do that and drink a bottle of champagne or something. So that's that's been my, my thing lately. I'm in on a champagne kick. Speaking of one more thing that we've done lately, I meant to mention this at the beginning of the show. I finished I finished Queen's Gambit. Really, I know you've watched the show multiple times. You've read the book. Highly recommend the show to anyone listening. If you haven't watched it yet, if you are a Magic player, you will see so many similarities in the show. You will see yourself. You will love so many things about it. If you are a competitive Magic player, you will see even more. You will actually see some of the foundation for competitive Magic where it was built yeah. from, which it is really cool. It will make you sad, but in a delightful way. Yeah. It, it's also, there's that nostalgia too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's like a the couple the couple scenes that are really nostalgic that, that really got me. But I think the show is really well made, really well done, very easy watch. What was it, six episodes or seven? seven? It's like seven episodes, about an hour long each. You will binge through these very quickly. It does require Netflix if you don't have Netflix. We are not endorsed by Netflix in any way, shape, or form. Just, just saying where the show is. But that's going to be it for this week's show. Uh, make sure that you... Uh, where was I going with this? I forgot where I was going with this. Anyway, Ross, if people wanted to check out more of your stuff, because I, I, I skipped over this and I realized it and needed to back up. Yeah, yeah. Ross, if people wanted to hear more of your uh, your opinions on the Electoral College, where would they go? Oh, you would go to my Twitter account. I'm at Ross Hunnids, best one-stop shop to get updates on all my content, as well as, uh, you know, ask me questions. And uh, I try to get back to people. Then there is my written content on StarCityGames.com. That article goes up every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern. This week's article is all about why I think electrostatic pummeler is the energy payoff you should be building around in Historic, not Aetherworks Marvel. Uh, I think Marvel is a trap. Uh, so uh, Agreed. Then, right. um, you know, appreciate support there. Then there is Versus Live, my non-written content web show. I host twice a week, co-host with Corey Baumeister. We're on the Star City Games Twitch channel from 1 to 4 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, Tuesdays and Thursday afternoons. Um, have fun playing whatever you know formats are relevant for competitive play. We take questions live from the audience. If you can't catch us live, you can watch the VODs on the Star City Games YouTube channel the following day at 5 p.m. Eastern. And then finally, there is my Twitch channel. I am Ross underscore Miriam on Twitch.tv. Appreciate any support thrown there. I tend to stream on weekends. I haven't done a lot of streaming recently, to be honest, but I'll get back into it soon. Yeah, but say you haven't been doing it much lately, but I have a feeling that I might be able to push you a little bit into the into the start streaming well, again thing. I've been watching and reading The Queen's Gambit, and now I'm done with the book. I finished the book earlier this week. You finished the show. The book is a very close, or the, the show is a very close representation of the book. I've heard It that. deviates more as the story goes on. Like, the second half is more different than the first half. Okay. I might still have to find a copy of it, read it myself. I, the, bo the book is good. I, I bought it for, like, 10 bucks for an, just an electronic copy. I love reading on yeah. a Kindle. Let's say I have, a, I have a, my it's wife a, has a Kindle, so... It's I'll a quick read, very easy. Mm -hmm. I, you can breeze through it. I, I, I took, like, four or five days off. When it comes down to Twitch, uh, I'm a little into the Ross category where I haven't been streaming lately. That might change. I do like the new limited so, format, and I have been playing soon. Yeah, I have been playing standard quite a bit, and that's just at Tan and Grace on Twitch. My Twitter is at the Tan and Grace. Tentatively, tentatively, Ross should be streaming. Was it Saturday night? Is that what we said? Yeah. Ross should be streaming Saturday night. So if you hear this before, then make sure you look out for it. Um, it would just be a maybe we'll have some magic on it, but it's going to be more of a so. We'll do some drafting. 
We'll definitely do, we'll do some drafting. Some drunk drafting, but... Yes. Um, has anyone that's listening here, especially since COVID has happened, seen any of, like, the reunion shows that go online? You know, they're like, uh, you know, like your favorite TV show. They get all the actors together on a Zoom call. Or or all this movie, you know, the, the they get them together, they reread some stuff, have fun, ask each other questions. That's a thing that's happening? Yeah, actually very common. It's, like, very common right now. Didn't know that. But uh, we had this idea... Because uh, every now and then, Ross, Brennan, and I have a little Zoom call, Discord chat, whatever you want to call it, where we just hang out and shoot the shit and talk about stuff where we were thinking about maybe we should put it on Twitch once and let Twitch chat interact with us, ask us questions, have fun, listen to us, you know, dunk on each other. It's usually me and Ross making fun of Brennan quite a bit, but, you know, we get some shots in on Ross, too. Yeah, he does deserve it. He's the prettiest. He should get the most shit. And uh, it's just us drinking and having a good time. So make sure you come out, hang out. There'll be some magic in there. But if you ever wanted to ask us some questions in a live setting, that is going to be one of your better opportunities to do it. As for the show itself, it does have a Twitter at MTG Rants. There is an underscore in there. It's MTG underscore Rants. If you just search for MTG Rants, you'll see it. Same artwork for the for the, uh, the the icon for our show. So make sure you check out there. If you want to get into that Discord, the link is in the Twitter uh, as well. You can find links for our Patreon in there. We have a lot of uh, cool stuff in our Discord for our patrons. You get to ask the questions on the show like we were talking about earlier. So if you want to ask an in-depth question, there's that. Um, Ross has been competing in a lot of tournaments lately. Uh, his deck list and sideboard guides go up in there as well. And then we're working on some tokens for you guys and gals at home uh, with the new name on it. And the art. Well, maybe we'll even give you some of the old ones since we've had them for so long and done nothing with them since we knew this was coming. So maybe we'll have both of that for y'all at home. But anyway, thanks for listening. We'll see y'all next week. As for the show itself, it does have a Twitter at Cast Pioneer. Wait, that's not right. What's the new one, Ross? I need to change this. Um. Oh, I don't know what it got changed to. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> give me two seconds. I can't believe this happened. I forgot that it, I'm so used to this muscle memory wise, like with my brain, because because it doesn't work. Right. It's 